It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. Uh, today, we are doing chapters 87 through 89, uh, which is mostly going to be chapter 87. The Grand Armada. Yeah, it's a, it's a long chapter, and a lot of stuff happens. Yep, it's, it's, you know, we've talked a bit about how there's sort of narrative and non-narrative chapters, there's descriptive chapters, and sort of musing, idly chapters. This is a very, very narrative chapter. Yeah. I'd it, say probably more narrative happens in this chapter than in, like, maybe... 50 pages of the book normally yeah that that might be true yeah um it's you know it's a scene of wailing we've had also, some of those before i would also say it's a scene of high wailing adventure yeah like, no for sure for sure for sure it is pirates there are totally pirates in this chapter i didn't i didn't even remember that there were pirates in the book yeah uh, they don't really make that much contact with the pirates. No, no, I... they're 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 there, and there's some stuff about them, but they're they're certainly not a major part of the plot. But it does lend a particular elan to the scene. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, so it it the the chapter starts out with um, a description of like the geography of uh, the Malay Peninsula and the Malay Archipelago, um, because they're they're passing through that part of the world. Um, and, uh... He specifically describes it as, like, the, the barrier between the Indian Ocean and, uh, the Pacific. Yes. Which, you know, that is, that yeah. is true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, they are passing through the, uh, the Sunda Strait, which is between Java and Sumatra, um, which is a very important passage for ships sailing to the Indian Ocean for trade. Um, so it, it kind of, uh, you know, he, he, he describes in, in a very, uh, you know, as usual, as you'd expect, very orientalist way, the idea of like yep, yep. the, the kind of, um, world of like the trade goods that the, can be accessed through the Indian ocean. The inexhaustible wealth of spices and silks and jewels and gold and ivory with which the thousand islands of that oriental sea are enriched so he's he's very straightforwardly presenting it as like this is the like the conduit through this through which this immense trade passes and unlike in europe where a similar uh passage would have like uh fortresses overlooking at either side here it's like green and natural uh you know islands it's still wild and you know very strongly implying like you know it isn't controlled this is like the you know the 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 frontier in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he compares, uh, specifically compares um, the, the Sunda Strait to um, three European straits. Um, he mentions the Mediterranean, so in that case he's referring to the Strait of Gibraltar, or possibly the Dardanelles, which is at the other end of the Mediterranean. I, I mean, 
Definitely Gibraltar. It has to be Gibraltar, right? I'm, I'm sure he's thinking of Gibraltar as as actually, like, the mouth of the Mediterranean. The entrance is to the Mediterranean. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just that it does have straits at both ends. Sure. I, I, did, I just wanted to mention the fact that this yeah, other no, strait that's, exists. that's very fair. I... Uh, he mentions the Baltic, which has the Danish straits, um, and... Uh, the Propontis. Which came up before because there was a sea monster there. Yes, it's also called the Sea of Marmara. Um, and that, the reason that I wanted to mention the Dardanelles is that that strait also, the 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 Sea of Marmara is the sea on the other side of the Dardanelles. Yeah, yeah. So, so he is talking about the Dardanelles as well. It's just he's separating, the, it's, yeah. the Gibraltar is the entrance to the Mediterranean, well, the Dardanelles is the entrance to the Propontis from well, his perspective. Well, again, the Propontis also has two straits. It has the Dardanelles uh, yeah. and the Bosphorus Strait on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um probably the Bosphorus Strait is the one he's thinking about because oh. that's where Istanbul is. Oh, yeah, so, that, that so makes sense. So there's a big fortified city there, right? That makes a lot of um, sense, yeah. Uh, the Probably the most significant city in the Danish Straits would be Copenhagen, and there isn't really a city on the Strait of Gibraltar, I don't well, think. there's not a city, but there's a famous fortress at the Rock of Gibraltar. Yes. Like, literally a fortress. Yes. It is, yes. Totally, there's a fortress. Um, yeah, and he, he talks about how, you know, um, those domineering fortresses which guard the entrances, this idea that, like, uh, you know, these various uh, polities lay claim to the ocean in this way, uh, which he's going to contrast with here, where there is no such um, organized control. However, yeah. there is piracy. Right. So what he, he basically says is like, okay, uh, the, you know, the people overseeing the, the Sunda Strait do not demand, like, uh, kind of ceremonial, um, you know, tribute for people passing through their straits. Uh, but they do claim some kind of tribute in the sense that uh, there are pirates here. Yeah, it's the, they freely wave a ceremonial like this, this being like lowering your top sails and sailing through more slowly, presumably so that they can, you know tell who who's coming and going they do by no means renounce their claim to more solid tribute uh and also i just want to say i really love the phrase time out of mind the piratical proas of the malays lurking among the low shaded coves and islets of sumatra have sallied out upon the vessel sailing through the straits and you know there's definitely some orientalism and some you know straightforward racism involved in this description but i love the phrase piratical proas because that's because you love proas it's because i love proas yes proas are a just a wonderful little ship design they're a they don't tack they shunt uh i will i will explain that i promise so the Normally, when a ship is turning across the wind, it has to turn its nose through the wind. This is called tacking. However, when a, a proa does not actually have a nose and a, um, like, it does not have a bow and a stern. Rather, that changes because the sail is refixed so that the ship is propelled in the other direction with the length of the boat always, like, the wide end of the boat, the beam, always pointing at least somewhat into the wind. This is called shunting, where you change the way the sail works so that it pushes you in the opposite direction. Pros are apparently, uh, they were very popular as a racing boat for a while. They're still, they're usually a, they're not quite uh, what you might call a catamaran, because while they do have multiple hulls, one of those hulls is a smaller hull that is intended only as a, like, balancing thing to keep the boat, which is always pointing one sa- a sail in a particular direction from being pushed over away from the wind, because it can't just sort of head off like a um, single-hulled or a, uh, um, a latine-rigged catamaran would. So a proa basically, um, instead of like turning, the entire boat just changes direction and goes what would have been backwards with the sail refit so that that is now forward. 
I think it is very, very funny that you were like, uh, pro is don't tack. Don't worry, everyone. I will explain what those mean. As though anyone for a second was concerned that you weren't going to explain how pro is sail. <laughs> I am wounded. I am slain. I'm not saying you shouldn't have explained it. It was good to explain it. It's interesting. Yeah, no, pro no, is, you pro know me. Pros are cool. Uh, I'm just uh. saying, no one doubted you. <sighs> yeah, that fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Anyways, pros are cool boats, and they are, you know, um, a design, I think, yeah, basically innovated in this region of the world, in the Malay Peninsula, and, you know, obviously shared with surrounding cultures, and uh, later sort of uh, discovered and um, discovered by Europeans, specifically, obviously not discovered, but like, uh, Europeans took an interest in them. Uh, One place you may actually have seen a boat that is similar to a proa is in Moana where her, like, personal little boat is built to the general design of a proa, but it's very much, like, you know, obviously a little bit simplified, a little bit more, like, obvious in how it functions than a proa. I don't think her boat shunts at all. I think it tacks. Interestingly, uh, it seems like, I'm just, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page now, and it, it, it actually seems like the word proa... Uh, was used by Europeans for, like, a number of different Oh, boats. so it's entirely possible that proa was is a more general term than what is usually referred to as a, a the shunting proa. Um, it's entirely possible. I, I believe it. I totally believe that Ishmael does not actually know about the shunting, or else he would probably have mentioned it. Uh, yeah. Well, um, it sounds like... Uh, so, I, I think that... Again, this is Wikipedia. Um, but it sounds like the type of boat that is referred to as a proa that would exist in the place that we're talking about here is um, slightly different from what you're describing. Mm, yeah, it looks like from the Wikipedia page that it's, it's got a double outrigger. So the, the secondary hull that I was talking about that keeps the boat from falling over is an outrigger. Um, that is to say, it's like... You know, it's like a secondary hull, but it's smaller and less important. A double outrigger would simply have one of those in both directions. Yeah, I think the shunting boats you're talking about are, um, like, uh, not Southeast Asian boats. Oh, really? They're, they're only, they're... Or, or, well, okay, uh, is... What I, I guess does Oceania count as Southeast Asia? Well, technically no, because Oceania would be across the Wallace Line, um... Right. We don't have to go into the Wallace line right now. I, I was so sure you wanted to talk about the Wallace line on this episode. No, I do, but I feel like going straight from proas and shunting to the Wallace line would just leave people being like, okay, but get to the whales. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the section... We can take a little while. Okay, but this, is, will... this is the section about, like, Southeast Asian and Oceanic. Oceanian... Uh, Geography. Geography. So this is where you're going to talk about the Wallace line, if at all. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah, I do well, think I do think the proas that are in this book are probably not the kind that shunt. Unfortunately, shunting proa is so cool. I, I mean, look, these other boats also, also look cool. pretty cool. They're cool. They're you know they've got outriggers. They've got uh, um, crab claw sails. They do a lot of cool stuff. Um, I think you're looking currently at, like, the modern and sort of generic trimaran developed out of that. 
um, as opposed to the uh, traditional uh, proa, also known as para or uh, pareo. Or there's a lot of words that sound a lot like proa that are presumably different European traders' versions of. Or, you know, maybe there's a cluster of related words in the region. Yeah, I think there's lots of... I, I think there are a bunch of different languages, equivalent terms. Um, uh, but yes, it does look like the um, uh, ship designs in Indonesia and um, the Malay Archipelago are not the shunting proa. I'm really sad now. Shunting proas are so cool. Not that trimarans aren't also cool. I, I don't mean to be mean about trimarans. I I, I I do not blame you for being ex- excited about shunting, uh, but it's just a, it's just a much more unique style of, of boat maneuvering than almost any. Like shunting is really cool. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I've never shunted. I've tacked boats. I've never shunted a boat. Well, I hope you get to someday. Um. That's very kind of you. <laughs> but um. Anyways, uh, so pirates. O- okay, but did if you, we get you... to the pirates, we're not going to talk about the Wallace line. Okay, fine. The Wallace line. <laughs> <laughs> the Wallace line is a you know imaginary line dividing effectively Oceania from Southeast Asia, and what it actually is is a one of the earliest major biogeographical distinctions made on, you know, our understanding of the surface of the planet under Western science, where uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, uh, I actually wrote my undergraduate thesis about him. Um, it wasn't a very good thesis, just want to put that out there. Uh, but I wrote uh, I wrote about him because he was a uh, major um, naturalist and uh, early biologist who was involved in the theory of evolution. In fact, technically speaking, the original theory put forward by... Uh, Darwin is technically the Darwin-Wallace theory because there was kind of simultaneous discovery. Darwin had thought of it like 20 years earlier, but then spent 20 years desperately writing a book and getting all the evidence because he hated arguments, basically, is my take on it, and wanted to have as much proof as possible behind it. Whereas Wallace was perfectly happy to go, hey, so I think Beatles change. And like was just perfect. And, and, and just press publish on the post. Exactly. Yes. Wallace was a poster. Darwin <laughs> was not. Darwin was maybe a blogger. But in any case, uh, due to shenanigans, it's a very interesting history, and I recommend looking it up. But that would be going so far afield that I just can't justify talking about it in depth here. Also, would take forever. It ends up being called the Darwin Wallace theory, technically, for like the initial presented theory at the Royal Society of. Uh, natural selection. And so Wallace specifically had been a specimen collector traveling in the Malay Archipelago, and he has, you can now actually get uh, facsimile copies of his notebooks from that period, which are very interesting. Um, You know, is a Victorian naturalist, so be warned, Victorian naturalist here. He was a socialist, and also a uh, believer in seances and a number of other really interesting things, uh, some of which turned out not to be real, but, you know, I like Wallace a lot. Um, but, and, you know, decent politics for a Victorian Englishman. But uh, he also discovered the basically that there's a major biogeographical difference between populations on either side of the Wallace line. And the reason for this is basically that, and this is a major sort of point of evidence towards evolution by natural selection, speciation from common ancestors, is that there were different starting populations and Oceania is just far enough away from the larger ecosystems of Asia, um, Europe, 
Africa, all of which have pretty, you know, easy transit between at their, you know, connecting points, there's enough of a gap in the geography of the islands that crossing the Wallace, that not that many species crossed the Wallace line in a way where they could have replenishing populations. So on one side, you get marsupials, you get different beetles, you get different birds. And then, you know, obviously there's more transfer of beetles and birds than there are of marsupials. Whereas on the Asian side, you get more standard mammals and more like standard uh, species. And Wallace was like, huh, it's really weird that I go not that far between these two different islands and the entire ecosystem changes. But on that side, it's all these species shading into each other. And on this side, it's all these species shading into each other. And so he came up with his idea of what he called the, the Sarawak Law after the island of Sarawak, if I remember correctly, that he was on at the time, where he basically said, new species seem to appear near species that are similar to them. And that explains why you have all species that look similar to each other on this side of this line, and all species look similar to each other on that side of the line, but there's not, like, a similarity here, and it's really weird that there's this, like, sharp discontinuity. So that's the Wallace line, and that's why, um, like, there's this, that is how the, dis the sort of biogeographical distinction between two regions is made. It's slightly different from this sort of plate tectonic distinction between continents, but I honestly don't know enough about, uh, tectonics to, like, say whether Oceania is, like, one or multiple plates or whatever. I just know that the Wallace Line was a major part of defining it as a separate region of the world than Southeast Asia. Yeah. Uh... And this is what happens if you get me talking about an area of my expertise. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, like, look, I... It is true that the Wallace line is not really directly related to this chapter, but we've talked about very slightly related things in the past. <laughs> and when I was looking at, like, uh, you know, maps of this region and, like, geographical information, just so I could kind of figure out what strait is he talking about, where is Sumatra, where is Java, mm. like, the Wallace line is on... Ma like, if you were just looking for um, geography of this area of the world, you will find out about the Wallace Line. Yeah, no, it, it's a very big deal historically, biogeographically, and so on. I I have no idea if it's since become more complicated or differentiated in, like, modern evolutionary science. I just know that it was a big deal in establishing this uh, idea of biogeography in a different way from how... Um, in a, in a way that connected up to evolution by natural selection, whereas previous biogeography with um, Humboldt had been much more about, like, different, um, uh, like, elevations and climate ecosystems and where species sort of s uh, filtered out that way. Uh, anyways, that's, that's all of my irrelevant information for today, I hope. Okay. So, uh... Pirates. Back, yeah, back to the Pequod, which uh, is currently, um... Heading through the Sunda Strait uh, with the intention of um, basically uh, cruising toward the Philippines and then by Japan, um, all of which are, you know, pretty good whaling grounds, uh, so that they're basically going to pass through uh, uh, these Indian Ocean whaling grounds. Or uh, South China Sea's whaling South grounds. South China Sea's whaling grounds. Uh, well, th so they have passed through the Indian Ocean whaling grounds. I'm confused about... Because they're, they're passing out of the Indian Ocean into... Okay. Because they went under Africa. And now they're going up through the Indian Ocean. Oh, they're go... Wait a minute. They're going west to east. Right now. I'm pretty sure. Oh my gosh. Um, 
are you totally sure about that? Because I think they, they went around the... the Cape of Good Hope. They, but they were in. Weren't they in the Pacific just now? I don't. Could you? I swear they just went around the Cape of Good Hope. I'll bet you can find um, a map of the Pequod's journey online. Uh, okay, so the... You're, pr- you're like, probably right. I just need to look at some maps and... Yeah, you're 100% correct. I'm the one who is confused. They are leaving the Indian Ocean. They are going into the South China Sea. Yeah, and from there to the Pacific. Yes. Got it. I was confused in several ways. Uh, Everyone, please forgive me. (laughs) Naval geography is hard. I was wrong about proas. Yeah, fair. Um, Oh my god. So yes, they are are at this point. Yeah, the, the Pequot is generally passing, going... Crossed the Atlantic, went under Africa, is now heading up, like, so they'll go over Australia and through, um, you know, uh, through the Strait of Sunda between (laughs) Java and Sumatra, into, through the Indian Ocean, into, um, the South China Sea and thence to the Pacific, where they will get to the season on the line. And I, I have no idea if this is meant to be a longer journey than they should than they could have taken because Ahab wants to hit all of these possible split spaces uh, Moby Dick is, or if this would be the normal journey that a whaleman makes to reach the Pacific, and then you go back by the same way because it's better than going down around uh, South America. Yeah, I, I I do not know what the normal. Um you know, path for a whaler would be. Um, yeah, I'll be honest. I think that's something Ishmael sort of assumes that, if not that you know what a whaler would do, I think Ishmael kind of assumes you would know what a boat would do. Like, if yeah. you're just traveling from X to Y around the world, you'd have a general sense of which direction you'd want to go. Yeah, I also think uh, that one part of this is like, it was mentioned earlier that the Pequod left Nantucket in such a way that they were going to have to travel for almost a year before they got to the season on the line. Yeah. And it wasn't really clear to me at that time whether that was purposeful so that it would have this long cruise where they could go through, you know, all these other whaling grounds. Or if it was just like, well, that's when Ahab got a boat. And so he decided to spend that time going through other whaling Yeah, grounds. I got the impression that it was basically... We're going to take off as soon... He wants to take off as soon as possible so that he can be pursuing the white whale. But that also means they have this sort of time uh, buffer before they actually... um, Before they actually reach the uh, season on the line. So they can take this kind of zigzagging cruise, which also, coincidentally for Melville, allows him to take the book through every region of the world where whaling is done, in his opinion. Yeah. All right. So, uh, except for off off the Basque Shore. They never go there. (laughs) Yeah. Despite it being the most venerable of whaling grounds. Yeah, I mean, do they ever... So they haven't yet been anywhere in the Arctic. There's definitely whaling there. Yes, there's there's further... There's whaling further north. I I, I don't think... I think that the Pequod is engaged in the South Sea fishery, not the North Sea fishery. Yes. I think those are, like, different. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's this sense that possibly the South Sea fishery is more for sperm whales, and if they were hunting right whales more, they might go to the North Sea fishery, but I'm unclear on that. Mm, that I feel like that's been implied, but I, yeah, I Yeah, I don't have a specific either. instance. Anyways, so, 
even just getting into the Grand Armada, we've had a lot to talk about. Part of that is just me. Sorry. Yeah. Well, no, it was good stuff. Um, uh, but yeah. Okay, so, so also piracy. Yeah. Like part of the part of the uh, statement here is that the uh, European boats coming through have you know, with guns and swords, chased off the pirates a lot, so they're much less aggressive than they used to be. But there's still very much a sense of, like, I mean, frankly, kind of an Indiana Jones, like, you know, the natives showing up with spears. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a bit racist. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, uh, also, um, uh, I, I realized, I think one major reason why I was confused about what direction they were going through the mm-hmm. strait is that he discussed the strait as the gateway to the Indian Ocean. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, that is not the type of voyage that the Pequod is on, so yeah, she's yeah, not that going that sense. direction. But anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, um, and by the Strait of Sunda, chiefly vessels bound to China from the west emerge into the China Seas. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so he says there are occasionally English and American ships that are boarded by pirates and pillaged. And I will say there's sort of a sense that, like, this isn't a, this isn't a thing every boat going through deals with. So there's sort of a, a sense of um, adventure to the Pequod running into pirates. Yeah. Which yeah. they do. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't have brought them up if they didn't. That would have been, like, just if you just discussed pirates but they didn't happen, <laughs> can you imagine how annoying that would be? Yeah, yeah. Although... You know, I wouldn't put it past Ishmael to be like, oh yeah, there's a lot of pirates in this part of the world. Anyway, none of them bothered us. <laughs> okay, you're you're right, but I would be more annoyed with him than I am about this chapter. Yes. Uh, so, I'm not generally annoyed with him about this chapter, to be clear. Yeah. Uh, so the next like point that Ishmael brings up is, uh, well, you might think that the Pequod would stop for water, seeing as they're, like, passing pretty close to these islands. Yeah, he specifically says, But how now? In this zoned quest, does Ahab touch no land? Does his crew drink air? Surely he will stop for water. Nay. (laughs) Yeah, uh, and he explains how, basically, any kind of non-whaling vessel would have to stop for water because they are weighed down with all of their, you know, trade cargo or whatever. Um, or trade cargo, or um, weapons, or things like that. Um, but because uh, whalers, you know, don't set out with that sort of thing on board, and because they are, because they cruise for so long, they just go out with years worth of water stowed. And food, and everything else. Like, they're, the whaling ship, as he presents it, is intended to basically never land. It's a fully self self-contained multi-year-long vessel with you know i think he describes it as a lake in its hold and you know provisions stocked up for years of travel which also explains because remember we previously saw boats coming back from like three years on the line where the sailors clothes were ragged and the sails were like many times stitched and they generally just looked like they'd been through the ringer yeah and that makes a lot more sense when you realize they're not planning to trade at any port or anything to get replacements for stuff yep uh yeah and he um he also has this lovely little turn of phrase where he's like you know um uh whalemen are used to being at sea literally maybe not even sighting land or sighting a port for years just hunting whales um until their cargo hold is full and they return um saying, so that did you carry them the news that another flood had come? They would ans- only answer, well, boys, here's the Ark. Yeah. Yeah, although 
can you imagine being the, the crew of a whaling ship coming back after like four years you've only been getting occasional letters from other whaling ships and just like there's no land left everything's been like swamped with water just that would be distressing yeah yeah i think that ishmael is slightly underselling how horrible that image is yeah uh <laughs> anyway so um so as the pekawat is getting close uh to uh to the strait um to the the java shore uh this is known to be a, a possible good hunting ground for whales so they're all keeping uh close lookout yeah, and specifically, I get the sense, I don't know if he states it explicitly, that the reason why you can really get good whaling in these straits is that the whales also need to go through here to get to the Pacific. Like, you know, sperm whales travel the globe during the before returning to the Pacific on the season on the line, so this, it's, you know, suitable for ships, and it's also suitable for whales. Yeah, he doesn't ever state that specifically, I don't think, but I, I do believe that is implied. Um. Yes, because... After all, the Grand Armada is not boats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, so, uh, they, uh, they don't see anything until they're almost in the straits, uh, but then, uh, they spot, uh, just a, a huge... A, you might say grand? <laughs> yeah, a, a grand set of whale jets. You um, might say an armada? Yes, indicating... <laughs> Indicating uh, a, a giant herd of sperm whales. Yeah, like, um, just extremely huge. Frankly, large enough that I keep trying to, like, keep it in my mind's eye and failing. Like, yeah. this is a ridiculous number of whales to the point that it's just, like, does he baffling. Ever, does he ever give, like, a number about approximately how many he no, thinks No, just, is? like, like, there's enough that the spouts are all blurring together into this great cloud that the, um... You know, uh, like he says, embracing one half of the level horizon, a continuous chain of whale jets were up playing and sparkling in the noonday air. Um, and just, he also suggests that the reason why such a huge, just like megapod of whales, like an armada, why this huge armada is happening is because whale hunting's been getting more and more aggressive and the whales are running scared. Yeah. Um... Uh, I think he specifically describes it, I don't know if you want to, um, if you want to read any of the description here about, like, uh, how they're, the inextensive herds. I don't know, you, you said herd, so I felt like that was uh, your... Yeah, yeah, um, uh, say, he says that, uh, here be it premised that owing to the unwearied activity with which of late they have been hunted over all four oceans, the sperm whales, instead of almost invariably sailing in small detached companies, as in former times are now frequently met with in extensive herds, sometimes embracing so great a multitude that it would almost seem as if numerous nations of them had sworn solemn league and covenant for mutual assistance and protection. Um, so, yeah, he's basically suggesting that the whales are, are forming, uh, you know... An um, alliance? Yeah, like uh, mutual defense pacts. I... I said alliance, and then I immediately thought the Rebel Alliance, like from Star Wars, and it's very goofy, and I don't want to allow my brain to imagine Captain Ahab as Darth Vader. Oops. Anyways. Yeah, I think it's, I, I think, it's very I think dumb. thinking of Star Wars, anytime someone says the word alliance is Just a little... in the context of, like, a grand alliance against, you know, a powerful fate. It's, it's a goofy thought. I know it was goofy. Okay. Uh... <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to roast me again this episode, but you will. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, okay but... So he, he does talk about um, how the, this, this huge herd of whales is uh, mm-hmm. having to kind of like bunch up to get through the strait. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think that kind of implies that they are, you know, that they need to pass through the strait for the same reason that the boats do. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he also mentions briefly the uh, shape of whale jets and how you can tell a sperm whale from a right whale. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which honestly has not come up yet, which is kind of wild, given how often recognizing what kind of whale it is has been important. Yes, we have previously heard about how right whales have two spouts yes. and sperm whales only have one. But he also mentions here that um, unlike the straight perpendicular twin jets of the right whale, which dividing at top falls over in two branches like the cleft drooping boughs of a willow, the single forward slanting spout of the sperm whale presents a thick curled bush of white mist, continually rising and falling away to leeward. Uh, so yeah. yeah. Uh, also, there's this description of um, of like this this host of whales, this and all their spouts, show, showing like the t- thousand cheerful chimneys of some dense metropolis, described of a balmy autumnal morning by some horseman on a height. So like. There's supposed to be, like, a thousand whales here or more. Just incredible numbers of whales such that they are they are creating a haze in the air. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the Pequod, um... Does what the Pequod does. Yeah, yeah, basically starts to hunt them. Uh, it, with, uh, in particular, the, the thought that, like, yes, they might capture some of these whales, like multiple whales, potentially, but also, uh... It seems entirely possible that Moby Dick might be one of these whales. Yes. Um, Implied is like there would be one white whale amid all these black whales. It's like this visible, um, you know, greater figure within it. Mm-hmm. Like almost like Moby Dick would be the the sort of like king presiding over yeah, this gathering. Yeah, the, the, the sacred promontory of the occasion. Yes. Uh, and I do think this is very interesting because what happens next is... This is where the pirates show up. Uh, Tashtigo, uh, uh, you know, sp- spots them coming up behind the Pequod. Um, and uh, basically, as the Pequod is chasing the whales, uh, some pirates are chasing the Pequod. Yep. Uh, and um, I do love this phrase because Ahab, Ahab, you know, gets out his spyglass, sees, uh, sees them and says... Aloft there, and rig whips and buckets to wet the sails. And my understanding of this is not complete. I'm reasonably certain that the idea is, and I don't know if this is true, is that wetting the sails with water is a way to increase how much wind they can capture. Basically, it's making them less permeable. Hmm. But I don't actually know if that's true. That is the, like, vague sense I have for this kind of sailing. But I don't know if wedding sales is a oh, thanks for googling uh wedding sales if it's going to uh make them more effective oh yep the the immediate response on quora which we all know quora is true uh <laughs> is that wedding sales reduces how porous the canvas is and increases the amount of air that they're capturing yeah yeah i i uh hmm Oh, oh, Okay, so someone who claims to have 60 years sailing, racing, boat building, teaching, coaching, writing experience. um, (laughs) Thanks, Quora. uh, Says that that wedding sails does do something, but it's not because of decreasing their their porousness. 
It's due to swelling the fibers? Huh. So the claim is being made that um, you basically, you stiffen the sail with water. And that means if you have very little wind, it will catch the wind a bit better because the sail will stay in a shape, which is important to maintaining, like, the effect of sailing. Um, Whereas not wetting it will do that and other people yeah someone else 50 years a sailor says it is the porosity thing i gotta say 50 years a sailor is like literally a line from like a sea shanty that i knew um uh, jack was every inch a sailor so uh no it's five and 20 years a whaler specifically it's a whaling song actually oh, we should have it on sometime oh, uh-huh. I, should, I should dig up the lyrics so yeah it, it seems to me like there is no consensus yeah it sounds like the general idea is yeah to make the sail less permeable but also some people are like oh it doesn't do that no it stiffens the sail the, the point is it's to make it go faster yeah whether it works we don't know <laughs> i mean it's it's probably like i've heard a lot about pouring oil on the waters to calm them during a storm i have no idea if that works at all i cannot imagine that works i mean i'd assume not but it's it's a really established maritime tradition since like literally you know pre-biblical times pre-new testament like roman sailors doing it so um i don't know it feels like on the one hand i don't believe that it works but on the other hand, i don't want to just dismiss the sailing expertise of people who did it for a living in boats that i would just die on yeah fair enough um but, like, yeah. Ben, you know, like, what the the forces are that cause storms. Well, no. Okay. Pouring oil on the waters, I've always assumed the important part of it is not breaking the storm, but rather that it might have some effect on the surf around the well, ship. Well, okay, yes. I understand that it's not trying to, like, stop the thunder. But, like, it, it's... It the... is the case that surf is created by wind and water, and whether pouring oil on it does anything seems unbelievable to me. I'm just saying that, like... Pouring oil on the water, wetting the sails. There's a whole list of things that people did to make their boats work better that I find completely unbelievable, but also I don't want to say, yes, I, the armchair sailor, know exactly how to make a trireme work. You foolish Romans. Uh, okay, fair enough. I'll, this is an act of humility. I I, I know. Sort of. I Listen, I, I, I am not saying I have a problem with this. This, uh... Experiential epistemology of sailing is, Oh, uh, no, I'm Ishmael now. Yeah, was that not purposeful? No! But it's like the thesis of this book that if you want to understand whaling, you need to go out and ask a whaler. I think his thesis is the book is that you can't understand whales. At, anyways. No. It, there's a lot going on. Okay. Anyhow. So. Pirates. Yes. Uh, some some very racistly described pirates. Oh, yeah. Do, do we want to stay? No, we don't need to read any of it. Go read the book yourselves if you want to see the exact phrases the man uses. I will say, he uses the adjective rascally, which has never been a good adjective to use in almost any context. And if you immediately follow it with an ethnic group, stop. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's a reasonable word to use about, I don't know, a cat. Um... <laughs> or a wabbit. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, uh, anyhow, uh, but but uh, it 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 seems like uh, you know the the Ahab, the uh, the effect of the pirates on the ship, and in particular on Ahab, is on some level really just to 
urge them on. I mean, that's Ishmael's position. I think that that's Ishmael being very condescending to these pirates where he's like, oh yeah, no, obviously they're never going to catch the Pequod. Really, all they served as was, um, you know, their, he says, how very kind of these, some things that are racist, to assist in speeding her on to her own chosen pursuit. Mere riding whips and rowels to her, that they were. And it's like, it's such a, oh, we're too cool to be afraid of pirates. Yeah. They were just speeding us forward. And it's like, yeah, but the way you describe the characters reacting is everyone going, oh, fuck, pirates. Yeah, yeah, fair. Um. Uh, but I do like the description of, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that it's not an effective passage or even a kind of funny joke. I just think that Ishmael here is being a little bit, uh, like, He's trying to puff himself up a bit. He's trying to present himself as being cool. Yeah, no, this is fair. This is fair. Um. And then, yeah, there's Ahab's uh, sort of... um, Ahab between uh, bloodthirsty pirates chasing him and the monsters he chased. uh, And, you know, his sort of... um, him thinking that they're just driving him on towards his... You know, towards death and ruin and, and bloody battle. Um... He's, uh, this idea that the people cheering him on are remorseless wild pirates and atheistical devil, in, actually inhuman atheistical devils, geez, uh, cheering him on with their curses, the idea that the people on his side are his enemies in some way. That's very Ahabish. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I feel like, uh, if nothing else, um, Ishmael is being consistent in his presentation of pirates as, like, just totally evil. Yeah, just a, a, a demonic force that uh, moves across the sea. Uh, I do remember him discussing, like, you know, pirates, they definitely are all, like, all the time in his previous descriptions of them. Yes, exactly. Um, also, sorry for that terrible sound effect. <laughs> yeah. Um, I... I certainly have a fair amount of sympathy for these pirates because Oh it, yeah, I agree. It seems to me that they are basically um like uh counteracting the process of imperial plunder. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say counteracting, but they're certainly responding to it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's fair. I'm sure they are not uh taking things that were taken from them literally. Yeah, but, but the I think the thing that I most stands out to me is He's perfectly willing to say, well, if you have a fortress and a flag, you get to require material tribute and such to go through your straits. But if you're doing it, like, uh, you know, independently of that, not associated <laughs> with a nation state, then you're a pirate and demonic and evil. Yes. And, like, bloodthirsty as opposed to just, like, I am pretty sure that they just want your stuff, Ishmael. Same as most people running around with boats. And it's also just... I remember the fact that when he described slavers, he wasn't positive about them, but he certainly wasn't calling them crude by demons. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I uh, mean, like, you know, it makes sense. Like, pirates are a threat to the Pequod. Yeah, exactly. Or not. Exactly. Um, He's, you know, in his whaler-centric morality. <laughs> yes. Uh, in, in much the same way, I think that um, uh, other whalers who are not as good at whaling as the Pequod are, like, totally fair game to shit oh, on completely. yeah no yeah you his, know his treatment of whalers especially non-american whalers who are whalers from nations that he considers to be subpar national whalers this is gonna happen again in a couple chapters actually he's just not he's not nice about them he he's racist against german whalers <laughs> it's a real weird thing to be ishmael along with your sort of normal racisms yeah um 
But oh, I do really like this metaphor at the end of this paragraph, though. The one about Ahab's brow. Sure. Uh, because it's like after sort of the thought that he's being chased by pirates that are cheering him on towards his encounter with monsters... Ahab's brow was left gaunt and ribbed, like the black sand beach after some stormy tide has been gnawing it, and without being able to drag the firm thing from its place. So this idea of, like, Ahab, once again, having all the thoughts that would lead you to maybe go, huh, maybe I shouldn't hunt the white whale and do battle with God. And Ahab's response, as always, is to be unmoved. He cannot be swerved. Yes. Um... So, uh, they, uh, they, they make it through the strait, um, and, and have pretty much, uh, pulled past the pirates at this point. Yeah, the pirates never get any close. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the wind dies, uh, and, and they're relatively close to the whales at this point, so they, um, they lower the boats, um, and then, uh, it seems as though the whales, you know, notice the boats being lowered, uh. So they um, speed off again. Uh, yeah, I do love the repeated use of, and he never specifically specifies what this is, the white ash. Because whenever this book refers to the white ash, it's referring to the oars, because that's the wood that the oars are cut from. So there's like this phrase of like, you know, we'll move with the white ash wind, or, you know, we sprained the white ash. And each time it's, a, or, you know, or it broke the white ash. And I think that if you didn't, pay a little bit close attention to what that is it would be a very cryptic reference but what he means every time is the oars in a very like homeric way yeah like it's that kind of like um you're saying it's like a like an epithet or like a kenning or something yeah exactly that's that's the word i was thinking of yeah that's cool yeah and so you know um stripped to our shirts and drawers we sprang to the white ash and so uh they take several hours rowing hard after the whales because the pequod far in the rear uh, just doesn't have enough wind to keep up. Yes. Um, and uh, they're about to give up, but then the whales sort of get... Confused? S- yeah, scared and confused. They um, hurt themselves in their confusion. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and he, uh, he says that uh, th- they're in a state which uh, the fishermen describe as being gallied, uh, which he then, in a footnote, explains... Uh, this is an, this is an uh, old Saxon word meaning. I to... don't have that footnote. Oh, Anyways, but please, well, let please... me let me just read this. To galley or gallo is to frighten excessively, to confound with fright. It is an old Saxon word. It occurs once in Shakespeare. The wrathful skies gallow the very wanderers of the dark and make them keep their caves. And he goes on to explain that it's a um, it is a totally uh, obsolete word in you know contemporary 19th century english except on for, land on land yes except it is it is uh still in use by nantucketers um oh man you should you should read this bit about uh yeah uh to common language the word word is now completely obsolete when the polite landsman first hears it from the gaunt nantucketer he is apt to set it down as one of the whalemen's self-derived savageries but, so he's saying a landsman would assume that, like, it's whalers... It's a neologism. Whalers yeah. just made it up, and, uh, you know, it's, it's uncouth. Yes. Much the same as it with many other sinewy Saxonisms of this sort, which emigrated to New England rocks with the noble brawn of the old English emigrants in the time of the Commonwealth. Thus, some of the best and furthest descended English words, the etymological Howards and Percys, are now democratized, nay, plebeianized, so to speak, in the New World. 
That's a lot. I can't believe my copy doesn't have that. I'm upset. That's such a good footnote. <laughs> yeah, so he is basically arguing that, uh... Sinewy Saxonisms. <laughs> basically arguing that, that retaining this archaic word is, like manly and admirable yeah. Yeah, in and, whalers and it's also democratizing because these it's i mean think about a little bit about ishmael's own background when we talk about this he's saying that these old fam this old family or rather this old like linguistic tradition has been um tra that transplanted from england and has this you know ancient history and this importance has now become democratized and plebeianized has become merely a worker in the whale fishery that ennobles the whale fishery and you have to think he's thinking of himself and his own personal family connections because we do know he's from a family with uh connections to captains and uh good education and generally ishmael's you know he knows that he comes from very nice New England stock, as he might put it, but he's not going to brag about it of himself. But I wouldn't be surprised if he has a family connection to the Howards or the Percys. Uh, I, I mean, okay, we, I feel like we have talked before about, like, Melville's, what we know about Melville's family mm, background, yeah. and I don't remember the details. Like, uh, okay, Howards and Percys. Okay, Howards and Percys aren't American, sorry. Yeah, Howards are... and Percys are English aristocracy. Okay. Um, so he's not connected to the Howards and Percys. Yeah, but... but but I do think you're right that this idea of, like, kind of uh, old-fashioned nobility being, like, translated in New England into something, uh, you know, democratized, plebeianized, is... I, I agree with you. This is saying something about people as well as saying something about words. Yeah, and I think specifically about Ishmael. Yes. Um, anyways, I do just... Sinewy Saxonisms is an amazing, stupid term. <laughs> and I am absolutely going to consider using it and then realize that it sounds super racist and not do that. Yeah, don't do not do that. <laughs> I'm not going to. It's like quoting Conan the Barbarian, like Conan, Conan stories. You can't do it. It almost certainly is racist to use it in any useful way. Yes. Uh, okay, so that's what it's it is. Sinews, Mark. That, that's what... Ah, that's why you're thinking of Conan. Um, exactly. Anyway, that's what it means to say the whale is gallied. The whales are gallied. They're, they're scared <laughs> and confused. Um, they're chaotically blundering about. Yes. Um, and, uh... In vast, irregular circles, swimming aimlessly hither and thither. Yes, and some of them are just floating, as if paralyzed. God, just... The image of a whale just being like, ah, oh, I'm too concerned, and like just sort of floating on its side, flapping its fins helplessly, is very pathetic. Y yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, helplessly floated like waterlogged, dismantled ships on the sea. So like a ship with no mast that can't uh, drive itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He compares them to sheep. Yeah, yeah. Well, he compares them to... Uh, to uh, sheep pursued by wolves, uh, buffaloes, um, you know, stampeded by a, a rider, uh, but also to uh, people rushing out of a theater at the word of fire. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, so he's, he's basically saying like, ah, yes, all herd animals have this instinct to like panic when pursued. Uh, and of course, it's human beings who are the most ridiculous in this. Yeah, yeah. There but is no folly of the beasts of the earth, which is not infinitely outdone by the madness of men. Yeah, yeah, Ishmael, continue defending whales when they're literally just like, we were escaping, now we're panicking. Ah. Yeah. Like, the thing that really strikes me about this galleying, like, I, you know, I ultimately agree that it makes sense that, like, something happened, the herd lost 
it's you know um coherency and now none of them know which one to follow it's like a school of fish getting startled and going in all directions and swirling around a bit but like (sighs) ishmael desperately being like still noble animals still impressive (laughs) this is definitely not a sign that they're very easily hunted yeah. It's hard. You know, I, I agree. That sounds believable. I'm just... <sighs> this galleying is not the most noble behavior. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, I think because of basically this, like, scattering, the, the herd of whales has stopped moving forward as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the boats split up, each to hunt their own particular whale somewhere on the outskirts of the group. Um uh, so now, from this point forward, we are we are in Starbucks' boat with Ishmael and Queequeg. Uh, Queequeg darts the harpoon. Uh, they make fast in a in a whale, um, and the whale. I I just want to say it's really lovely that you're using the terminology. I mean, what am I? What else am I going to no, say? No, it's, it's the correct words. We've just heard that there's a correct vocabulary for whaling. I, I've said that they've darted harpoons and made fast in whales multiple times before. I know, but it's just the fact that right now you're going through it without feeling the need to to explain any of the vocabulary is just neat to me. I think it's good. I, I just I wanted to say I thought that was a good sentence, and we're all about good sentences on this podcast. We really are. It's true. Anyway, so the whale uh, pulls them uh, steered straight for the heart of the herd. So they, they are, uh, and, and uh, this is not, like, unusual in a situation like this, but it is extremely dangerous because they are now being, like, tugged through all these other whales. And With they be- only a little bit of steering power because they're being exactly. yanked along the line. Yes. Uh, I like his description of it as, For as the swift monster drags you deeper and deeper into the frantic shoal, you bid adieu to circumspect life and only exist in a delirious throb. Like, the phrase delirious throb is a lot, but it's like you're just completely, you know, your heart is hammering, you have no control over anything except to react to what's going around you. No thinking about things or, like, you know, circumspect of behavior. So it's like, so I take it, Ishmael, that you were basically useless for this period. Well, all right, let me read the paragraph about how (laughs) the boat handles this problem. But not a bit daunted, Queequeg steered us manfully. Mm -hmm. Now shearing off from this monster directly across our route in advance... Now edging away from that, whose colossal flukes were suspended overhead, while all the time Starbuck stood up in the bows, lance in hand, pricking out of our way whatever whales he could reach by short darts, for there was no time to make long ones. Nor were the oarsmen quite idle. Quite. Though their wanted duty was now altogether dispensed with, they chiefly attended to the shouting part of the Okay, business. so what you're saying is Ishmael's just going, ah, ah. No. They're taunting the whales, and that's helping. <laughs> I don't agree that it is. Out of the way, Commodore, cried one to a great dromedary that of a sudden rose bodily to the surface and for an instant threatened to swamp us. Hard down with your tail there, cried a second to another, which, close to our gunwale, seemed calmly cooling himself with his own fan-like extremity. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right. Ishmael probably took part in the shouting. Yes. But, yes, he's not being <laughs> helpful. I, I, I just, when you said that Ishmael was probably being useless, I just, he specifically said what his purpose was here. Yeah, that's, And, yes, yep, it's yep. a silly, pointless purpose. But. Yep, yep. There's also this comparison of, like, the um, the ship moving through the whales as, like, uh, like a ship in ice among broken, like, icebergs crashing among them mm-hmm. that, you know, needs to avoid being caught between them and crushed. Yep. And I just think it's a, it's a cool image. Um, 
then from there we get a little bit about what exactly they're getting up to here. Yeah, so, uh... They're drugging whales. <laughs> yes, they are. Which they're is... giving whales drugs, Mark. <laughs> they are, which is not what it sounds like. Uh, so, <laughs> these are also known as drogues. So, in the book, it's spelled D-R-U-G-G. Uh, oh, yeah, I know what a drogue is. Like, there's, a, yeah. like, drogue parachutes or something. Like, it's it's basically, it's not, like, a full parachute or anything, but it's a, uh, a smaller chute that serves to provide wind resistance without being, like, an actual chute. Yeah, so drogue, D-R-O-G-U-E, is, uh, the, these words clearly sort of refer to, like, a general category of, like, device that creates yeah. water resistance. The or ones or that, air resistance in other contexts. Too. Right. Uh, the ones that Ishmael is describing are of a pretty different design than the ones that you'll find if you look at, say, the Wikipedia page for Drogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, uh, I mean, I, I assume because these are not, most Drogues would be used to reduce the water, res- or sorry, to increase the water resistance on a boat yeah. or a ship. However, these are being used to increase the water resistance on whales. Yeah, they're, the ship wants to have, like, it's kind of like a sea anchor. It's a thing that will slow down your motion through the water rather than, um, and you probably don't want it to completely stop. Whereas here, you do want it to be enough resistance that the whale will get tired out and slowed down by it. Yeah. So it's basically, I mean, I'll just read his description of what it looks like. Two thick squares of wood of equal size are stoutly clenched together so that they cross each other's grain at right angles. A line of considerable length is then attached to the middle of this block, and the other end of the line being looped, it can in a moment be fastened to a harpoon. So this is basically just a big block. Yeah, it's a big square, uh, like, it's two squares intersecting that'll have a lot of, like, I'm, I'm sort of seeing it as, like, a, a screwdriver head kind of shape. Oh, interesting. I was picturing it as just two squares that are, like, stacked, and that just have their grain crossing. Oh, interesting. Because he does say, so that they cross each other's grain at right angles, yeah, rather I, than... Yeah, I assumed that they were both, that they were, like... I'm, I'm doing a hand gesture that's not very helpful. I assume that they were like, like if you cut a notch in each of them and inserted them at right angles so that the mm. grain is still crosswise as well, but the two of them are now fit together. I don't think we know. I don't think it's easy for us to figure out because like you said, drogues don't turn up this the way yeah, we want if it. you look up drogues you will get a sort of parachute shape yeah i feel like it has to be it has to be something that's built so that you can have a like i guess if the line were straight through the center and it were just two flat thing like two things flat against each other the way you were suggesting with a line through the center that would definitely serve to slow things down it's possible the version i'm describing might tumble until the edges are pointing out or like i guess what i mean is that I think there's a lot of different ways you could construct something out of wood that will just slow things down. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's just there to create resistance. He also mentions that it was originally, um, it's apparently based on a design invented by uh, Native Americans of Nantucket. So it's a, it's a very oh, old technique. Yes, that's right. He does say that. Um. Yes. And the, um, the point of this is basically... Well, you don't find sperm whales every day, so yeah. when you do, you should kill as many as you can. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, essentially this is, so that's his explanation for why this is something you use in this situation where you just have a ton of whales, uh, and you cannot kill all of the whales that are available to you, so you want to try to slow some of them down so you can get them later. Um, 
and uh, they they do manage to drug two whales. Yep, yep. Which Um, means darting a harpoon into them and then just throwing the drugs overboard. Yes, uh, but the they they managed to do that with two of the three drugs or drogues that they have. But the third one, uh, they mess up in tossing the block overboard, and it tears one of the seats out. Um, uh, dropping the oarsman in the boat's bottom as the seat slid out from under him, which I'm just imagining me the person where like a huge wooden thing has just ripped your bench out uh, out of the boat and like smashed through some of the wood leaving you just sitting on air i imagine is a combination of sheer terror and a certain amount of relief that you're not currently flying into a sperm whale yeah yeah no it definitely seems pretty lucky that that oarsman remained in the boat yeah 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 i just presumably like falling over flopping over i will say the immediate aftermath is that um on both sides, the sea came in at the wounded planks. We stuffed two or three drawers and shirts in, and so stopped the leaks for the time. So, um, I'm assuming that now at least some of them are sitting around in either the nude or, like, big comedy underwear with, like, the red hearts on it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, they, uh, they are, you know, continuing to be towed by the whale, but, um, their, their harpoon, uh, pulls out of the whale. Um, so they, they lose that particular whale. Um, Mm -hmm. and then they kind of glide into this, uh, basically calm at the eye of the storm. The proverbial calm at the eye of the storm, in fact, Ishmael says. Yes, he he literally (laughs) makes that comparison. Uh, this area, this, this, like, space at the center of the whale herd, um, where, uh, which is, like, calm and where the whales are just like kind of resting under the surface rather than being gallied yeah um and uh he also says that the um there's a thing called a sleek where the water near whales can become incredibly like smooth and glassy which is is wild yeah um um he describes it as produced by the subtle moisture thrown off by the whale in his more quiet moods Again, no idea how that works, but I'll, I'll, I choose to believe Ishmael. Yeah. Um, and uh, at this point, the situation that the boat is in is that they can't really go anywhere because they are, you know, this, this calm area is surrounded by all of these whales that are in a total tumult. And so they can't really, uh, they can't really go between those whales easily. So they kind of just have to wait here and like yep. look for an opportunity to get through. The... Yeah, to row out. Yes. And I think they've lost, by now... They've lo- okay, I guess they would have one harpoon left because they could pull it back in after it slipped out of the whale. But their other harpoons have gone with the drugs. Yes, that's right. Um, and while Don't they're... do drugs, kids. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, and while they're here, um, uh, the uh, uh, cow and calf whales just kind of swim up to them. And also the water here is incredibly clear because of that sleek surface. So they can like look down into these um into the into the water and see like nursing whales and like basically a nursery of uh the cow whales with their calves yeah yeah um. uh, he also mentions that this um this area is like must have contained at least two or three square miles so it's a huge space yeah yeah um i think that gives a certain sense of just how massive this herd of whales is yeah that, like the, the center area of it is two or Surrounded three Surrounded by a, a ring of, you know, agitated whales. Yes. Um, 
and he describes this as being you know almost as though it were intentional as though the you know the outer whales were defending their uh you know the the infants and uh and mothers of the center which entirely possible yeah i i i don't think it's implausible that 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 some kind of behavior like that is something that whales could do Mm -hmm. um i don't really know like i i did a little bit of uh whale research a little bit of research into like what kinds of like social groups are whales known to exist in Mm -hmm. um mostly inspired by the later chapter that really goes into that but um, I don't really know if, like, a, a group of whales of this colossal size is something that we know about. But on the other hand, he suggests in this chapter that the reason they're doing this is because of whaling. Yeah, that so, this is reactive. So, if that's the case, and I don't think it's implausible. Like, I do believe that sperm whales change their behavior in response to human behavior. So Moby Dick definitely does. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> and so, like, if that's the case, it, it wouldn't be something that had been observed in, like, you know modern like 20th century whale yeah science? when there's far less whaling that would yeah. make sense yeah no i i don't think it's really that knowable unless we can find some like attested sightings from the yeah. 19th century and like i so i went and found i the first like the scientific paper that i found uh that was kind of going into the social organizations of sperm whales was from 1970 um so you know not the most yeah, recent, recent whale yeah. science but like uh and that cited beale who is one of the 19th century cetologists mm. uh, that like came up in the um, pictures of whales. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so like clearly, you know, 19th century sources continued to be of relevance to whale science. Yeah. Uh, until at least the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, <sighs> there's also this charming description of how like the little baby whales who have not yet learned that humans are incredibly dangerous are like coming up and like being curious at them. Yeah, yeah, he has he, he suggests that either the reason that the whales are coming up to them here is that they don't you know, they they don't know why the herd has stopped, like they don't know mm-hmm. about the galleying or just yeah, they don't know what whaling is because they're they're baby whales. Yep, being so young, unsophisticated in every way, innocent and inexperienced. Yeah. Uh, but, like household dogs, they came snuffling round us, right up to our gunnels, and touching them, till it almost seemed that some spell had suddenly domesticated them. Queequeg patted their foreheads. Starbuck scratched their backs with his lance, but fearful of the consequences, for the time refrained from darting it. I just love the image of Queequeg sort of awkwardly being like, good whale, pat-pat. <laughs> yes. Uh, and as Ben mentioned, uh, they can see down into the clear water, um, uh, the whales who are, un- you know, deep, deep beneath them, uh, uh, they can see, uh, yeah, nursing whales. Um, it's it's a really majestic image. Just the thought of, you know, sitting on this little boat, looking down into this immense depth and seeing these huge creatures serenely at peace. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they even spot um, something which... Uh, I don't know if I'm meant to think that this is just the way that he's talking about it kind of elusively or if he's actually confused, uh, but Queequeg cites something and describes it as being uh, a whale being fast to a line. Uh, and it turns out that what he's seeing is uh, a, a baby whale still attached to its mother by the umb- umbilical cord. Um, and yeah, and it's... it's Yeah, 
I, I, I genuinely don't know if Queequeg is supposed to be confused and thinking that there's a whale that has somehow been made fast, like, deep under the water, or if he is just using, like, a metaphor to draw everyone's yeah, attention to this unusual sight. It's unclear, but I gotta say, I cannot imagine that Queequeg doesn't know what an umbilical cord is, you know? Yeah, well, I think it is. I think it might be genuinely difficult to tell mm, from like the distance that's just a, that a, at. a looping strand around the uh, around the whales, and so he's like, "Oh, look, a whale's been, you know, a whale's been lined. There's there's that line. Who did that? Yeah. And then, you know, when you look, the uh, you know Ishmael is like, "Oh, that's an umbilical cord." Yeah, but but again, I do think it's possible that that Queequeg yeah. is not confused, but just being metaphorical anyway. yeah he also yeah you know i think i think that's a very reasonable read he also uh ishmael also mentions that apparently in the chase for whales sometimes umbilical cords get tangled up with the line which is just very distressing yeah yeah um also distressing is this footnote uh, yes uh he says some of the subtlest secrets of the seas seem divulged to us in this enchanted pond we saw young leviathan amours in the deep and then there's a footnote about uh, whale, sperm whale mating habits. Well, mostly sperm whale nursing habits. I mean, also like they they, they don't have a season for mating. They'll have uh, they'll bear children at any time of the year. Um, they usually have one rather than you know multiple. They don't like have a, a, a clutch of whales. But sometimes, as he puts it, uh, though in some few known instances, giving birth to an Esau and a Jacob. Yeah, those being twins in the Bible. Yep, yep. Um, uh, what is it? Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I, I have hated? Uh, uh, yes, I think you're right. I yeah, think that's I, a line. Yeah, there's, I just have this very strong sense that if you have like an Esau and a Jacob, it's not quite the same as a Cain and an Abel, but one of them is really going to get the short end of the stick. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That is that is how things go in that story. It's not so, good to be Esau. Yeah, that's just my very strong emotional like memory of i think there was some book in middle school or something i read that used that as like the metaphorical thing for a story about two siblings one of whom was the bad one and like you're you're getting it from the perspective of the person who saw themselves as the esau maybe yeah anyways that's just why i have a strong sense of that emotional dynamic uh <sighs> anyway yeah so one, you know, worrying thing yeah, that he talks God, about here. Yes. Oh, God. So Do he, you want to take point on this one? Yes. Uh, uh, he talks about, you know, the, 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 the breasts of the whale. Um, and when by chance these precious parts in a nursing whale are cut by the hunter's lance, the mother's pouring milk and blood rivalingly discolor the sea for rods. So, all right, that's itself. I think that's very upsetting yes, to think about. Yes, yeah, 100%. That is, but the next sentence is worse. Yes, the next sentence is even more upsetting. The milk is very sweet and rich. Semicolon. It has been tasted by man. Semicolon. It might do well with strawberries. Period. I'm so upset. Ishmael is just straightforwardly saying, I've had whale milk and I might have it with strawberries if I had strawberries. That's so... Like, he has to be referring to himself. Yeah, no, 100%. It has been tasted by man, by me. <laughs> like, oh. God, it's so much to go from, like, murdering a nursing mother yes, to yes. stealing her milk and, and having it with it on strawberries. strawberries. I, oh, God. It's, it's so disturbing. It's just the bit where he's like, it is very sweet and rich. I'm like, okay, I'm willing to believe that you can, like, smell it or something. It has been tasted by man. Ishmael, where are you going with this? <laughs> it might do well with strawberries. Ishmael, stop! God, and then, uh, by the way, I don't think you were able to follow this sentence because he's very uh, euphemistic here. But the next sentence, 
When overflowing with mutual esteem, the whales salute more hominem. I have no idea what more hominem means. I admit, I didn't know what the sentence meant, and I just sort of went... He means that whales mate face to face. Oh! More hominem means in the manner of humans. And oh. by overflowing with mutual esteem... Okay, yes, I get that. I get that. Yes, I get what that means. That, yes, okay. I would not have gotten that one without the assistance of PowerMobyDick.com. Thanks, PowerMobyDick.com. <laughs> really glad we couldn't have left that one mysterious. <laughs> Immediately after the fucking whale milk. <laughs> yeah. This is the worst footnote. Why do I have this one and not the other one? This one was not necessary. The other one was so much more useful. The other one quoted Shakespeare. This one just quotes Ishmael's desire to have whale milk on strawberries. Oh my god. It's Uh, it's so much. uh, uh, This is... We're going to have to have, like, an eventual ranking of, like, our favorite and least favorite footnotes solely so that I can put this on the bottom. Uh, okay. Uh, it has provided us with lots of content, but I still hate it. God. It might do well with strawberries. Ugh! Fucking disgusting. It's awful. <laughs> I think, personally, the structure of that sentence is itself shows showing that Ishmael knows how upsetting that sentence is. Ishmael knows what he's doing when he says, the milk is very sweet and rich, semicolon. It has been tasted by man, semicolon. It might be, it might do well with strawberries. I just... Yeah, um, I think it's fucking hilarious that he went to so much effort in a previous chapter to be like, look, eating whales might seem kind of gross, but I think it's okay to eat whale meat and to potentially boil, like, or not boil, like, fry ship's biscuit in whale oil. He had to devote a whole chapter to justifying that. But this, this! Yeah, I think the thing that's really upsetting to me is, like, okay, if you could milk a whale like you did a cow, and that is where you got the whale milk from, I would find it significantly less upsetting than the manner in which you'd have to actually extract whale milk in this context. Yeah, no, 100% he's getting the whale milk from a dead nursing whale. Yes, a whale that has been captured nursing and is presumably, they're like, oh hey, this one's got milk, let's tap it like we tap the spermaceti. Jesus Christ. And it's like, ah yes, this will add to our provisions. Whalers are demons. (laughs) No, pirates are demons. <laughs> Whalers are just sort of pirates, but unto whales. <laughs> oh my god. All right, we gotta yeah, move you on. Know, we I gotta just... move on. Okay, I have one awful cursed question. Should I just not, not no, do it? No, no, go for it. Do you think he's ever tried to make whale cheese? Oh god. I mean, so like... like... surely you don't drink all the whale milk you get if it can oh. discolor the sea for rods. Oh my god. I mean, okay. Like... <sighs> In order to make cheese on land, you need, like... Thank you for entering this terrible, terrible imaginative (laughs) space with me. I really appreciate you being game for that. You have to... You need stuff. Something. Other than literally just, like, a container to put milk in and let it spoil, right? You need, for example, like, rennet. Mm -hmm. or, or, Or some kind of... Some kind of culture, right? That... Mm-hmm. Cheese is is fermented from milk. So I don't. I want to be clear. My question was not. Do you think he's succeeded? Do you think he's tried? 
Like, the, I guess what I'm saying here is that I hope that Ishmael, as a, as a New Englander, is sufficiently familiar with dairy processes that he wouldn't try. Or rather, I should say, sufficiently familiar with dairy processes and sufficiently uninterested in just, like, sour milk. Because there are plenty of cultures around the world where people do, in fact, drink the results Various of, kinds like, of fermented you, milk there, there are ways you can, Yeah, there are ways you can ferment milk that require somewhat less, like... Stuff. Stuff than making cheese. Although, even those, I, I guess... There's, I don't know that there's the, any, like, maritime tradition of onboard milk processing. I, I guess, like, what I'm thinking about is, would you have the right kind of, like, lactobacillus in the air at sea? I feel I like not, right? I mean, unless it's in the planks of the ship. Like, maybe you can do it, like, like in the way that in, I think it's, um, I can't remember if it's specifically, uh, miso is supposed to be, like, like, you want to get cultures from, like, the planks of the factory where it's processed historically. Because, mm. like, you, in the building itself, you get the various fermentation organisms building up so that you you get a particular flavor from a particular location. I think that's me. So I'm going to be honest. I have that information from a Usagi Ojimbo chapter that was all about, like miso merchants having a feud and so it went through the steps involved in the production of again i think it was miso don't quote me on this not an expert on this i just thought it was super cool and now i'm just distressed that i can't remember the specific fermented product but the point being you could theoretically theoretically have a ship that had wood that had been impregnated with the right kinds of you could have a, you could have so a floating dairy a marine dairy but i think that I think that this is a nightmare. Oh, first of all, this is a nightmare. Second of all, I think if we want to learn anything about the possibilities of... of, of <laughs> I'm dying. <laughs> the possibilities of marine fermentation. We should look into we should look into ships that had cows on board, right? Because that was a thing. Yeah, no, you... you I think... I, just... I imagine... Mo- I, I believe that usually when a ship has a cow on board, it's for meat, not for milk, but... Yeah, but I'm, I'm sure you could... Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should look into this, maybe. I just, <laughs> This is so I'm stupid. I'm so sorry I asked this question. We're not... Hubris. We are not going to try to research the concept of maritime cheesemaking. That is absurd. We are At moving on. At least not on, on air. At least not on air. Okay, okay. Next paragraph. And thus the surrounded <laughs> by circle upon circle of consternations <laughs> and affrights. I I am gallied right now. No. I am I think I think you could fairly say that this podcast has been gallied by that footnote. We are so upset that we can't move forward. <laughs> oh, <that sighs> these inscrutable creatures at the center freely and fearlessly indulge in all peaceful concernments. Yay, serenely reveled in dalliance and delight. Okay, here, we need to take guidance from this. But even so, amid the tornadoed Atlantic of my being, do I myself still forever centrally disport in mute calm. And while ponderous planets of unwaning woe revolve round me, <sighs> deep down and deep inland there, I still bathe me in eternal mildness of joy. Okay? There is, yep. like, yep. happiness in there's the an... soul, despite the fucked up shit going on in the world yep. around yep. us. There's, we, there's an <laughs> island within the soul, and deep inland of that, there is a, a permanent stoic joy that is untouched by the external world. Thank you, Ishmael, for leading us out of the terrible place you took us to. <laughs> Okay, so, <sighs> back 
to whale hunting, okay? Yes, which is why all of this becomes upsetting. Like, mm-hmm. if this were just about the whales, I'd, I'd find it, like, eh, weird to talk about their milk. But we, we know the context. And the yeah. context is war upon whales. Uh, specifically, he, in fact, specifically frames it as, like, a war carrying on within, like, the outer circle while within there's this piece. Uh, but... He now, you know, now and then you can see the drugged whales who are being effectively a drugged whale is like um, I can't remember the, the the place where I first saw this metaphor image, but it's like a, a horse with a puma that's jumped onto its back. It can't actually run away from the thing that's on it, so it just runs back and forth wildly. That is a fascinating metaphor. I don't know yeah, where you I, got that one from. I don't either. I just had this image of a big wildcat on a horse, the horse running away in terror. I'm just like. Why? Why is this in, why is within my, like, mental archive of images and metaphors, does that present itself as, oh yeah, that's a thing that happens all the time? <laughs> okay, well, uh, anyway, so, so they can see from this, like, central spot, they can see the other boats hunting, and they can see the whales that have been drugged, like, running back and forth, uh, sail, swimming back and forth, good lord. I, I mean, he often uses running to mean, like, just fleeing. So. Yeah, yeah, like, running out. Anyway, um... But they also see something uh, even more dramatic, um, which is, uh, so sometimes uh, when, you know, a boat has made fast to a whale, they try to uh, hinder the whale's progress by, like, cutting its tail. Yeah, so it's it's described as seeking to hamstring the whale, which is a direct reference to a thing you can do to an animal or a person, which is where you cut... You don't need to define... Do people not know what hamstring is? I feel like it's a sufficiently specific thing. Like, people know the idea of something being hamstrung as in, like, you know, weakened or prevented from moving. But I feel like specifying... Because they are doing the anatomical thing, which is cutting the tendons at the back of the the calf, like the ham, which causes, basically, the leg to not work. Yes. So they, they are basically trying to cut tendons in the whale's tail to prevent it from swimming yes using um. by darting a short-handled cutting spade so like you're you're taking the spade you'd use for cutting into the whale and throwing it like a harpoon or a lance with the hope that it will cause a deep wound and hamstring the whale yes but uh in this case uh there's a whale to which this has been like partially done but not it had enough... been tried but not in a way that was effectual yeah it's, it's been wounded but not actually prevented from swimming and now, uh, the, um... Anguished whale. Yeah, the anguished whale is swimming around. It's, it's swum off with the harpoon line and the cutting spade attached to the line. Yeah, the cutting spade has gone entangled in the line. So now, as this whale is swimming back and forth and wa- waving its injured tail wildly, the, um, and still got a harpoon in it, so it can still feel something on it, the, the spade is being flung about and cutting into the whales around it. So every whale that it gets near is, it's, I think he describes it as, as um, wounding and murdering uh, his fellows, his own comrades, but I don't think any of them are actually getting, like, killed. They're just being injured and sent running. Yes, and, and this is basically uh, causing, like, enormous tumult. Chaos. Absolute chaos. Yeah. Panic. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh... Enough to, uh, end the galleying. Yes, and, well, yeah, basically, um, the, uh, the, the, like, calm that they're witnessing, uh, breaks up, um, and, and the whales all kind of start to, like, close up 
on this center area? Yeah, and he, he describes it as the submarine bridal chambers and nurseries vanished. In more and more contracting orbits, the whales in the more central circles began to swing in thickening clusters. So they're all, like, grouping back up to leave, and this means that this space where the boat that uh, Starbuck, Ishmael, Queequeg, and a bunch of unnamed uh, characters uh-huh. are, uh, are floating is now becoming... There's less and less space for it as the whales move in. Yes, so at this point, uh, Starbuck and Queequeg swap places so that Starbuck can steer the boat. Um, And uh, now it's time for everyone to row hard uh, because they... uh, They're not being pulled by a whale. No, they need to get out of here as soon as they can. Yeah, Starbuck's doing his thing of like really intensely whispering like, Oars, oars, gripe your oars and clutch your souls now. My god, men, stand by. Shove him off, you Queequeg. The whale there, prick him, hit him. Stand up, stand up and stay so. Spring men, pull men. Never mind their backs. Scrape them, scrape away. So they're like pricking the whales away and pushing them away and desperately trying not to get crushed. Oh, and here's the other reason, by the way, why I wanted to mention the Dardanelles. I forgot about this, but he, he, he says... The boat was now all but jammed between two vast black bulks, leaving a narrow Dardanelles between their long legs. Yep, yep, that, so, that is a very good reason to make sure that the Dardanelles got plenty of, of description earlier on. Yes, so, well done. so they are trapped between whales as if in a, a strait, much like the strait they, they previously actually passed through. Yep. Uh, but they do manage um, uh, to narrowly sort of thread through all these whales uh, and, and get out... Yep, uh, the only thing lost was Queequeg's hat. Yeah. It was, which was buffeted off in the wind from a nearby tail. Rip Queequeg's hat. Yeah, rip Queequeg's hat. It was like the subject of an entire chapter early on, which, that means that nothing's safe. <laughs> yeah, so at this point, this uh, this giant herd of whales um, just swims off. Uh, yep. Further pursuit was useless. Um uh, but they do manage to uh, collect uh, a couple of whales out. Of, uh, well, okay, at least two whales out of this. Yeah, um, they they um, the boats still lingered in their wake to pick up what drugged whales might be dropped astern, and likewise to secure one which Flask had killed and waifed. Yes, uh, and he goes on to explain that a waif is basically a flag yep. uh, that you can stick in a dead whale. You've got, um, a, you've got a pole, you've got a flag, you stick it in the blow in the blowhole. Yes, uh, and uh, he says, Both to mark its place on the sea, and also as token of prior possession, should the boats of any other ship draw near. And more about that soon. Um, and I don't think they... Mm, yeah, you, they, I guess it is too. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because he says they, they get that one, the flask already killed, and then they also manage to capture, he says, Of all the drugged whales, only one was captured. Um, so... He, he says that there's a, a saying in the fishery, the more whales, the less fish. Yeah. Which um, is to say, the more whales you see, the fewer of them you're actually going to take. Yeah, which, I mean, given the immense difficulties they had in this chapter, that that seems plausible. Yeah, yeah, and it does seem like the whales are at least somewhat defending each other. So, like, a lone whale or, a, like, a small pod of whales does seem a lot easier to go after than the Grand Armada. Yes, uh, and... The chapter concludes with a, an interesting allusion to future mm-hmm, possibilities. Mm-hmm. The rest contrived to escape for the time, but only to be taken, as will hereafter be seen, by some other craft than the Pequod. Yeah, I will say that I think that the the way Ishmael implies this is saying that like that all the ones that we drug will eventually be captured. I don't actually think that's... At least we don't see all of that, if I remember correctly. We see like one or two, but I think there's been like three or four druggings. 
Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Because there were at least two druggings, successful druggings, by the, uh, by Starbucks boat alone. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I, oh, I have not yet read the bit that's being alluded to here, Yep, yep, yep. I'm just saying that I think the illusion is slightly sloppy. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, uh, that's the end of the Grand Armada. A lot of there. Yeah, it's just, wow. We've done, like, the length of what could be its own episode just talking about that chapter. I'm not saying we should stop now. I want to do the next two, but, like, goddamn. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's a lot there. But, you know, uh, we've got a lot of book to get through, and I think that these next two, you know, are really, they're very much framed by the Grand Armada. And, in fact, for a little while, the results of the chapter of the Grand Armada are going to be continuously returning for the next chapter. This is a big turning point in the narrative in a certain sense. Yeah. Uh, (sighs) So, the next chapter is called Schools and Schoolmasters. Yep, and Um, it in fact starts with, the previous chapter gave account of an immense body or herd of sperm whales, and there was also then given the probable cause inducing those vast aggregations. Uh, Now, though such great bodies are at times encountered yet, as must have been seen, even at the present day, small detached bands are occasionally observed. So it's just Ishmael going into full-on whale facts mode. Yes. uh, You cannot unsubscribe from whale facts. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And he is is now describing basically groups of, he says, 20 to 50 whales, Mm -hmm. um, which are known as schools. Um, Those are still larger than any of the groups we've seen before. Yes. uh, The Grand Armada. Uh, And and, uh, it does seem like... So these are the the types of schools that he describes here. Uh, th- this is the point at which I went and looked up that 1970 paper. Yeah. And that paper does basically describe social groups of whales analogous to this. But um, We're not that... going to try the, uh, we'll tell you later if Ishmael was right thing this time. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, uh, very and, fair. And uh, basically, um, I think, you know, uh, first of all, I think that... Um, whale schools as described in that paper are generally a little smaller than this um Mm -hmm. like maybe more like a dozen or fewer Mm -hmm. um you know i'm sure that has something to do with like the population of whales having decreased yeah Um, because of the you know uh commercial efforts described here yeah and then also i think that um there are like hml describes two types of schools here um the 1970 paper i should really up what this fucking paper's name is maybe i'll yeah we'll put in the it. description or something anyway um described like a number of other types of organizations and uh it seems like you know whale behavior is not uh super uniform not incredibly uniform no but but the the phenomena he's describing here first of all of uh, a school that is almost entirely female and then includes uh he describes it as exactly one male um seems possible that in in nature there's maybe like a couple of males in the school mm-hmm. of mostly females um that that totally exists and then a school of like young bull whales that also exists yep um he definitely has this sense that uh he's describing a girl's school at a boy's school in this chapter yes this is there is this cha- it's weird this chapter is just like rife with gender <laughs> yeah and like not in a way that is like at the very least the he's really far too much enjoying the idea that as as he'll go on to say the schoolmaster is basically the uh bull whale with a harem in the like girls school of whales and yeah. he he's just like and i'm just like this is a tasteless joke especially for someone who has been a schoolmaster <laughs> yes i feel like it's worth mentioning by the way that it, 
At least in 1970, harem was the word being used scientifically to describe this type of school. I I don't know if it's still used. I mean, it, it probably is, to it's be honest. It's entirely possible. Uh, However, I will say it's not very scientific that Ishmael insists on referring to the uh, the bull in a that has this harem of, uh, of cow whales as an ottoman. Yes, 100% Ishmael is leaning heavily on the actual image of a harem. Which Ra- is like the core image of Orientalism. Yes. Uh, rather than just kind of, uh, you know... Using the term. In, in the way that I think a you know 20th century scientist would just like... Using the term without a lot of thought to it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Historical or Orientalist con- uh, yep. connotations. But um, yeah, so he's describing his, you know... Uh, the quote-unquote Ottoman and his concubines in terms of, like, here's this one larger whale that, you know, uh, maintains this uh, this herd of cow whales. And, you know, he talks about how the cow whales are generally significantly smaller. That is to say, they're only huge. Yes, and, and it is true that uh, sperm whales have a pretty distinct sexual dimorphism, that the females are smaller mm-hmm. than the males. Um, yep, yep. I don't know whether the claim that he makes here that the... Uh, the bull associated with a primarily female school is always like an extremely large yeah one. <laughs> it's definitely there's this idea of oh yeah uh big you know this whale sent away for the like atlas um um like whale embiggening pamphlet <laughs> yeah and... this is this is the the like successful powerful masculine bull whale <laughs> yes yes this is this is the uh, uh the whale nobody knows um and just huge uh, impressive and there's also this description of like um uh you know the ladies uh, even at full growth are not more than one third of the bulk of an average sized male they are comparatively delicate indeed i dare say not to exceed half a dozen yards round the waist <laughs> it's a very dumb joke yes um, but like he is absolutely in this like not only is he uh describing the the whales as like you know uh a, an ottoman and yeah and repeatedly referring to like you know ottoman ranks and references but he is also definitely uh characterizing the 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 cow whales as like fashionable ladies yes um uh like he's described he describes their um seasonal mig- migratory patterns as if they were like a bunch of aristocrats who like move from like seasonal home to seasonal home based on what's yeah. fashionable. <laughs> uh, by the time they've lounged up and down the promenade of the equator a while, like, you know, it's describing them as exactly like a fashionable clique that, you know, travels to avoid the cold weather wherever they're going. Yeah. Or I, to I, avoid the hot summers. Yeah, I think really the best like fashionables, they are forever on the move in leisurely search of variety. <laughs> yes, yes. It's it just, you can just imagine these whales like parading with parasols or something. Exactly. Oh, that's very cute. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I think he wants you to find this cute. Yeah, that's fair. He also wants you to find it slightly risque because you see uh, the large bull whale has to chase um, uh, young males away from his, uh, his like pod because uh, as he says it, um, uh, though do what, I'm just going to say what he will, he cannot keep the most notorious Lothario out of his bed, for alas, all fish bed in common. So like, if the whale can't literally chase off uh, other bulls, uh, the cows will mate with them. Yes, uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> God, this this description of um, ladies. As ashore, the ladies often cause the most terrible duels among their rival admirers. Just so with the whales, who sometimes come to deadly battle, and all for love. All for love. They fence with their long lower jaws, sometimes locking them together, and so striving for the supremacy like elks that warringly interweave their antlers. Um, and he talks about sort of the how whales are captured who have like the marks of these battles on their jaws. Yeah, okay, this I, I want to look up quickly like i don't know if i th- i don't know if uh bull sperm whales like fight over females yeah yeah no it feels very much like direct sort of analogy to elks which you know i mean it, yeah. it's it's entirely possible that they do do this plenty of plenty of animals do this um and uh yep. certainly this like uh polygynous arrangement where mm-hmm. like one bull whale is like surrounded by a bunch of cows and is like mating with them Mm -hmm. uh that that's real um he's not just making that up um (sighs) also i his description of like um what happens after a whale like chases off the invader um uh you get to watch the uh the large leviathan uh gently he insinuates his vast bulk among them his his uh harem again and revels there a while still in tantalizing vicinity to young lothario like pious solomon devoutly worshiping among his thousand concubines so there's this sense of like oh the um the Leviathan is now going to basically show up, be like, oh, yes, just lie back, put his arms around his uh, his ladies. And meanwhile, his rival is, like, scuffing his foot and casting dirty looks because he's been chased off. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so it does seem like um, bull sperm whales fight each other over mm-hmm. mating. Um, uh, as Wikipedia puts it, though, uh, bulls will fight with each other over females, and males will meet, mate with multiple females, making them polygynous, but they do not dominate the group as in a harem. Yep, it's so, also, uh, before that is a, is a line on Wikipedia that I think is important, which is, how they choose mates has not been definitively determined. Yes, uh, and, and, uh, I, I think that all of this is, um, very interesting because, um, like, uh, the presumption that if a species of animals practices like polygynous mating behaviors which is to define that term that means that like one male mates with multiple females that that is like Mm -hmm. how their mating patterns work um the presumption that that means that that male dominates the females is very weird like, I understand why people assume that because of human culture, but, like, uh, I, I think it is- I, you're, you're certainly not going to get Ishmael to stop specifically projecting weird, often patriarchal, definitely orientalized images of human culture onto whales. No, you're just 100%. not going to win that fight. The thing that- I... Melville is dead, let alone Ishmael. The thing that I am, like, struck by here is not- not Ishmael, is it's Wikipedia feeling the need mm, to specify. specify. Like, I mean, clearly they need to uh, answer this myth, I guess, but it's like, there's just a lot going on in the phrase, they do not dominate the group as yeah, in a Yeah, 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 that's, that's reasonable. Anyways, let's get, let's get back to the actual 
Sorry, whale- the actual fictional whales. <laughs> yes. Um, so he, you know, mentions that um, uh, these, uh, these like, um, collections of whales, the male does not really take part in uh, infant rearing, which is, was also mentioned on Wikipedia. Yeah, I do uh, definitely get the sense reading this paragraph about sperm whale uh, mating practices on Wikipedia that it is perhaps written in part in reaction to this chapter of Moby Dick. Non-zero chance, non-zero chance, but, you know, there's not that many questions that one can have about whale mating procedures. Yeah, yeah, but but this thing about how uh, bull whales don't participate in, like, child rearing, I mm-hmm. guess, uh, that does seem to be true. Yep. Um, which, of course, in, in that too, Ishmael sees an analogy to the human for, like, certain other omnivorous roving lovers that might be named, my lord whale has no taste for the nursery, however much for the bower. And so, being a great traveler, he leaves his anonymous babies all over the world. Every baby an exotic. Yeah, yep. And then, you know, eventually, because obviously we're following the male whale through this life cycle, not the female. Mm-hmm. Uh, the male whale will, uh, the male whale will, um, you know, eventually sort of cease to be very interested in that. And Ishmael describes this as the impotent, repentant, admonitory stage of life. For swears, disbands the harem, and grown to an exemplary, sulky old soul, goes about all alone among the meridians and parallels, saying his prayers and warning each young leviathan from his amorous errors. Yeah, so he's seeing, like, the, you know, period of life when a, a bull whale is, like, no longer mating is, yeah, is a lone be- whale. Has become solitary. As Which presumably like, is where Moby Dick is, though he never makes the connection. Yeah, yeah. It, it does seem to be. Although, so, I I think that, like, I think that some solitary whales are like, uh, yeah, these kinds of, like, old bulls. But, but I think there are also, like, young bull whales that are Moby just Dick like... Moby Dick is supposed to be ancient. Yes, no, Moby Dick is definitely going yes Moby Dick is definitely like past his prime I guess or I mean I don't think he's past his prime because I don't think Moby Dick will ever uh, decay from his prime what I mean is that Moby Dick is is clearly not like potted up is one of the most massive whales and is ancient yes no this is all totally true I feel like the primary reason that something prequel 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 (laughs) you want to hear you want to hear about Moby Dick's like uh years as a husband I mean, in the same way that I kind of want to hear about Ahab's. (laughs) I feel like part of the reason that Moby Dick is not discussed at all in this chapter is that Ishmael doesn't want to present Moby Dick as past his prime. Yeah. Like, he doesn't want to present Moby Dick as one who, like, had this role. Oh, but imagine if he theorized, like, oh, but I think Moby Dick, presumably, was always set on higher things. Yeah, what if he's, what if he's... God, I can just see Ishmael being like, yes, Moby Dick never had a harem. He never needed one. Oh, God. He oh, doesn't say I'm anything not, like that. I'm, I'm making, not going down this the, the road I'm, of the jokes one can make here. Let's move I'm on. I'm making up a guy. I should stop. I know, but, I know. But um, anyways, in any case, uh, he also mentions that very rarely will the actual, like, bull with a, you know, a pod, a harem, whatever, be chased by whalers because um, they don't have much what he calls unctuousness. There's not a lot of oil to be wrung from them because they use up all their strength on, you know, their sort of duties i guess i i think what he meant by that is that like they are muscular as a like they, yes they're they too lavish of their strength and hence their unctuousness is small and like lavish of their strength i think means that i think it combat he means both that they're like too strong but also that they like 
you know, they lavish their strength. They're using it. They're not storing up fat. Mm, yeah, something like that. Um, yeah. uh, anyways, then there's this, this last bit, which is a lot. Yeah, yeah so he, uh, he, 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 he points out, and, and these are, like, real terms that are used because the, the group of whales is called a school. The male whale, the bull whale, is called a schoolmaster, um, which uh, he has a lot of elbow-jabbing or yeah, rib-jabbing yeah. jokes to make about that. It is that. therefore not in strict character, however admirably satirical, that after going to school himself, he should then go abroad inculcating not what he learned there, but the folly of it. I, I love Ishmael's interpretation that the solitary sperm whale is going around warning everyone else about the dangers of love. Yeah, like... Look at me. I spent my years chasing what did not matter rather than higher things. I had a harem once. <laughs> it's so weird. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a definitely a weird assumption. Yes, and he also uh, compares um, the idea of the, the, you know, the bull whale as schoolmaster to, um, like, he brings up this actual historical personage, uh, Vidoc, um, who is a Pretty fairly well known. Yeah, fascinating person. Wrote some bizarre, just wild memoirs. Um, at least some of which I'm sure have to be lies. But uh, someone who... Um, I mean, the, the short version is that he was the inspiration for vo both Valjean and Javert in Les Mis, like the original novel. Yes, he, uh, he, he, he like began his public life as like a notorious criminal and womanizer. Uh, but later in life became, like, the founder of modern criminology. Yeah, like, like of, of investigatory and forensic pursuit of crime. Yeah. Um, he was not a schoolmaster at all, yeah, as far I... as I can tell. I think Ishmael is just using him as the figure of a seducer. Yes. And is kind of saying, like, oh, what if someone like Vidoc was a schoolmaster? I wonder what he'd be doing with those pupils of his. With those... Nubile young ladies, strong implication. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anyways, it's this is all very, very bad taste, given that we know that Ishmael did once teach school, but I almost guarantee that he wasn't teaching at a girl's school. Yes. <laughs> um. <sighs> Anyways, uh, he also um, mentions that all uh, aged sperm whales take up that uh, lone, like, lone behavior mm -hmm. he has a very strange metaphor involving daniel boone yeah so he says like venerable moss-bearded daniel boone he will have no one near him but nature herself and her he takes to wife in the wilderness of waters and the best of wives she is though she keeps so many moody secrets uh and power of is like well actually uh daniel boone lived the end of his life in the then wild french territory of missouri but with many of his children and grandchildren around. Well, you know, nature could have been his second or third wife. <laughs> but yes, it's very weird that he's like, ah, oh, yes, Daniel Boone, who lived only with nature herself, he has his wife. And it's just like, um, actually lots of kids, human <laughs> wives. <sighs> anyway, now at the very end of this chapter, after talking a lot about uh, harem schools, um, now he's talking about uh, schools composed of young bulls. Um, yes, uh, what he calls uh, 40 barrel bulls, um, which presumably means that you get about 40 barrels of oil from them because they're not very large yet. Yes, and, and they are also not very desirable to hunt because they are by far the most pugnacious of all leviathans. 
and proverbially the most dangerous to encounter, excepting those wondrous gray-headed grizzled whales sometimes met. So, uh, And these will fight you like grim fiends exasperated by a penal gout. Yes. <laughs> so, I, I, there we have Moby Dick being alluded to. Yes, he is definitely suggesting that, that the most dangerous type of sperm whale is an old, bitter one. He's an old, bitter one, gray-headed. Strong implication. Then there's Moby Dick. <laughs> Watch out for that guy. Yes. Um, and uh, he compares the, the, the bull schools to, like, young, rambunctious college students specifically a riotous lad at yale or harvard uh that uh no prudent insurer would underwrite yes um and uh then uh his final point uh is to contrast the behavior of these two types of schools uh when when one member is attacked in a uh, very sexist way yes uh he describes it as still more characteristic of the sexes, uh, because supposedly if you attack uh, a bull... A 40-barrel um, bull in his school. Yes, all the other young bulls desert. Uh, they, just, they just take off. Yes, but if you uh, attack a cow, uh, all the other cows will like crowd around. Uh, in concern, and then you will pick them off. You'll be able to go after them as well. Yes, uh... So, uh, uh, male whales be like this. <laughs> female, female whales, whales be, be like that. this. Like, yeah, 100%, yeah. that's what he's oh, saying God. here. Oh, God. Yeah. <sighs> oh, man. You know, bros, if they're whales, will just take off on you when you get in trouble. But women, if they're whales, are really sympathetic and easily tricked. You know? Puts cap on backwards. <sighs> it's so much. Yeah, I will. There was also something we, we briefly missed, which I just love is the, um, the way in which, like, young college students have specifically like dudes from a university have historically been like just absolute hell hell raisers as like just in concept uh and you know just certainly they throw obnoxious parties next door to my apartment but i really don't <laughs> see them just smashing through bars anymore you know uh well uh... What do you think would happen if you harpooned a guy in a Bucks jersey next I'm door? I'm reasonably certain the rest of them would run away, yes. <laughs> Especially if I were screaming, from hell's heart, I spit at thee. <laughs> I don't intend to do this to the, like, fraternity, no, fraternity, yeah, that's, like, nearby me. But I do wish they'd stop having parties on Thursday nights during the semester. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's because, uh... You yourself are, you know, uh, in your aged years and regret the following. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was mean. I'm gonna harpoon you. <laughs> All right. Shall we move on? Uh, yes, to uh, chapter 89, Fast Fish and Loose Fish, which has some very important terminology. Yes. So this is where we're Also, I just want to say that using... If you combining the vocabulary of the last two chapters, you can say that you uh, drug and waif whales, and that's wild. <laughs> yeah. So this is going to explain uh, waifing, which is the thing that uh, Flask did to the whale he killed. We we um, already described. You put a pole in the up in the blowhole of the whale, so that there's a flag there, so that people know whose whale it is. Yes. And now he's going to basically explain, you know, the the set of uh, customs surrounding this and the reasons why you would do this. Yeah. Um. Essentially, it all has to do with uh, circumstances in which there might be a dispute over which ship gets a given whale. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he, the example he gives, um, 
For example, after a weary and perilous chase and capture of a whale, the body may get loose from the ship by reason of a violent storm, and drifting far away to leeward, be retaken by a second whaler who, in a calm, snugly tows it alongside without risk of life or line. Uh, so I think there's kind of a sense of, like, the first ship, like... Did all the work. Tired it out. Yeah, exactly. Did all the work, um, harpooned it, um, and specifically, in fact, captured it. In this example, the fish, the whale, broke free of the boat during the storm, not because it was struggling, but just because of the storm. Oh, yeah, you're and, right. Like, He's talking dead. about a it's dead whale. It's a dead whale. whale that this other ship goes, hey, don't mind if I do, and picks it <laughs> yeah. up. So Finders, in, keepers, losers, weepers, clearly. I mean, well, do you want to summarize the rules here? Yeah, so he explains, uh, there is only one actual formal whaling code uh, from Holland in, in 1695, but uh, there is also a sort of uh, informal and yet uh, universal and, and ironclad set of laws uh, by which American whalers adjudicate these things. Uh, uh, these laws might be engraven on a Queen Anne's farthing or the barb of a harpoon and worn around the neck. Yes, so here are, here's all the rules. One, a fast fish belongs to the party fast to it. Two, a loose fish is fair game for anybody who can soonest catch it. Or you might say, one, finders keepers, two, losers weepers. <laughs> yeah, kind of, yes. So uh, as he goes on to explain, uh, what is a fast fish? Alive or dead, a fish is technically fast when it is connected with an occupied ship or boat by any medium at all controllable by the occupant or occupants. A mast, an oar, a nine-inch cable, a telegraph wire, or a strand of cobweb. Uh, likewise, a fish is technically fast when it bears a waif or any other recognized symbol of possession. Do you know the, the classic uh, Eddie Izzard bit, do you have a flag? No. Oh, well, uh, the important thing is uh, you can, you're allowed to take, to own anything, including colonies, as long as you have a flag. If you don't have a flag, you're fucked. <laughs> yeah, that's... That's basically what's going on here. Yes, but 100%, yeah. Um, so yeah, as long as you have, like, anything connecting your ship or boat to the whale, or a, a flag that you've planted Now, in it. to be clear, he specifies a little bit more complexity with the flag, which is that so long as the party wafing it plainly evince their ability at any time to take it alongside, as well as their intention to do so. So you so can't if, like, just flag, if, a, flag a whale and then sail off. Yes, if the whale is just found floating with a flag in it, and there's not a, a ship or boat nearby, where if you started going for it, they'd come and pick it up, it wouldn't matter. So, like... You know, it's the important part with waifing is if there are multiple ships in the immediate vicinity of the same whales, you want to waif your whales so that nobody can claim, I, I just picked it up, it was just floating, it was a, fe- it was a loose fish. Yeah. Um, now, of course, uh, he goes on to explain, uh, these are scientific commentaries, but the commentaries of the whalemen themselves sometimes consist in hard words and harder knocks, the coke upon littleton of the fist so he's basically saying what is like, coke upon littleton uh an important commentary on british property law written by sir edward coke cool yeah so he, yeah. he's basically saying like okay so those are the rules as i just described them but in practice it what exactly counts as a fast or loose fish is going to depend also on whether someone is willing to punch you over it exactly um and uh he describes a particular case um in which uh Basically, uh, one, one ship, the plaintiffs, um, chased a whale, harpooned it, uh, had to abandon, uh, 
not just the the whale and the lines attached to it, but the boat. Yeah, they had to they had to jump overboard and let the whale drag the boat away. Yes, and then uh, ultimately the defendants, the crew of another ship, came up with the whale, struck, killed, seized, and finally appropriated it before the very eyes of the plaintiffs. So it must have been like floating on driftwood or something. Oh right? wow, yeah, you're right. I thought that their like ship must have been in the vicinity, but no, you're right. They must have been just like. They must have ended up, like, on a raft or in the water while their, like, you know, damaged boat is bobbing by the whale, presumably some distance away. And then this other ship just goes, don't mind if I do. Yes, and, uh, it gets worse. And when those defendants were remonstrated with, their captain snapped his fingers in the plaintiff's teeth and assured them that by way of doxology to the deed he had done, he would now retain their line, harpoons, and boat, which had remained attached to the whale at the time of the seizure. Uh... So, uh, so yes, the idea being, well, the whale was, the fish was loose, therefore it's all mine. Yep. This feels like, um, this feels like a, a bit of, um, what's, what's the term? Uh, I mean, obviously greed, but like, uh, audacity. Yes. You know? Yeah, no, this is audacious. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, he, he goes on to describe the, uh, the counsel for the defense and the judge, um, which... Incidentally, PowerMobyDick.com says that uh, these names that he gives are real people whose Scoresby wrote about. Huh. Um, so. Oh, so so Melville's just copying over Scoresby's story here. Yeah, well, I don't know that uh, the... Um, I don't know for sure. I would have to go look up Scoresby's book. Oh, to, to see how similar it was. Yeah, to see whether, for example, this argument actually appears in Scoresby. Mm, yeah, this argument is definitely a kind of thing I think that Melville would add. Yes, so the, the argument that he... Claims. Also, the two are Mr. Erskine and Lord Ellenborough. Yes. They're just great names. Yeah, Erskine, the, the defense attorney, uh, defending, to be clear, the people who took the whale. Uh, the obviously wrong party, in my opinion. Uh-huh. The jerks. And, uh, yeah, we don't know the name of, of the, the prosecutor in this case, um, but anyway. No, no, we just have Ellenborough as the judge, you're right. Um, but anyhow, uh, so the, de- the, the argument th- for the defense is by analogy to a... Uh, a recent, um, he says, crim con case, like crim period, con period, uh, which is short for criminal conversation, which means adultery. What? Okay. I did not know that. I mean, that explains why he abbreviates it, right? It's yeah, a euphemism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um. He doesn't abbreviate euphemisms. He expands on them, generally speaking. I just mean, like, when he's talking about something directly sexual, he tends to be a little bit unclear. Like, that's why he said that thing about... Yeah, no, I remember the thing. Okay, anyway. Let's move on. We can't go back to that <laughs> horrible place. Um, okay. So, so in the adultery case that he's talking about, uh, a, a man basically uh, despaired of correcting his wife from her adulterous ways uh. um, and, like, gave up on her. Good for her. Had at last, had at last abandoned her upon the seas of life. Like I don't know if it's good for her, Ben, because I no, mean, I know she she was all. I mean, good for her in the sense that he um he failed to correct her. Yes, I just mean like yes, she does sucks get, for her to get abandoned. Yes, on the seas of life, as mentioned, she certainly was left without you know financial uh, support. I'm I mean, sure. well, okay, she probably. She probably had financial support. That's probably one of the things that happens when you have a bunch of lovers, but... Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. Anyway, uh, later on, uh, the husband uh, decided, you know, regretted his actions and decided to restake his claim on his In wife. the course of years. This isn't like Yeah, a no, it's not a month later. later. No, in the course of years. Um, 
he instituted an action to recover possession of her, which, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, listen, um... I know, I know. <laughs> anyway, uh... And this would have happened around 1800, based on the 50 years ago that yes. Melville gets. Uh, and, and supposedly... Gosh, I didn't quite realize this when I was reading before, but it says Erskine was on the other side. And so I guess that actually means this same lawyer supposedly was involved in the adultery case? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh... And he made the same argument. Yes, so his argument. He then supported it by saying that though the gentleman had originally harpooned the lady and had once had her fast, and only by reason of the great stress of her plunging viciousness had a, had at last abandoned her. Good for her. <laughs> yeah, th- we do approve of plunging viciousness in wives on this podcast, yes. Also whales. Also in whales, yes. Um, yet abandon her he did so that she became a loose fish. And therefore, when a subsequent gentleman re-harpooned her, that lady became then that subsequent gentleman's property, along with whatever harpoon might have been found sticking in her. Uh, uh, yeah, I, uh. I think that meant her jewelry and, like, her ring. I think it's a dick joke. I I don't think that... I'm not... I, the, the imagery there is appalling. <laughs> I mean, you're right. The vibes you are putting out are rancid. <laughs> The vibes this chapter is putting out are rancid. That's fair. I mean, we'll we'll get on to further discussion of loose fish and fast fish, but... Anyway, so yeah, basically the argument is uh, this man wasn't able to... Uh, Hold on to his wife, and so... they divorced, and therefore she got remarried, and he has no claim. And... and the same is true if you can't hold on to a whale in a literal sense. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, the judge's decision on this, by the way, is that... um. The plaintiffs do get to keep their boat uh, because they only abandoned it in order to save their lives. They didn't, like, I guess... They did not, like, just set it adrift and declare it trash and not care about it. Exactly. They hadn't shown that... They they had been forced to its abandonment in a way that had nothing to do with, like, just neglect. Yes. However, uh, the whale goes to the defendants because it was a loose fish and... Uh, the harpoons and line also do because the harpoons and line belonged to the whale. When the fish made off with them, it, the fish, acquired a property in those articles. And hence anybody who afterwards took the fish had a right to them. Which is just like, okay, you get the boat, but... Yeah, that's... I I feel like the, the harpoon and line thing is pretty clearly established that you don't have to figure out who owned the harpoons in a whale you just got. But I feel like when they're right there, nobody's discounting that they did that. At least give them the harpoon back. I mean, a common man looking at this decision of the very learned judge might possibly object to it. Are you calling it. me a common man? <laughs> I, Ishmael's Fair calling enough. you a common Fair man. Enough. Listen, I too object to this. I also think this is <laughs> Yeah, rancid. that's fair. We... The common men agree. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, Ishmael's like, well, maybe this seems kind of unfair, but if you think about it, these rules about fast fish and loose fish really are the totality of human law. Um, these two laws touching fast fish and loose fish, I say, will on reflection be found the fundamentals of all human jurisprudence. For notwithstanding its complicated tracery of sculpture, the Temple of the Law, like the Temple of the Philistines, has but two props to stand on. Yeah. Um, and so uh, he, he goes on to argue, basically, uh, you know, he's, he, he quotes the often cited phrase, possession is half of the law. And 
See, I always used to hear it as possession is nine-tenths of the law. Yeah, that's true, actually. I think that is the more common version of the phrase nowadays. But goes on to say, well, often possession is the whole of the law. And, and goes on to describe just a, a whole range from, like, the... Slavery and serfdom to rents. Yeah, from, from really just covering the gamut of situations where, like, the rich and powerful are able, you know, by means of legal structures to exploit other people um uh he describes um yeah as you said russian serfdom and and roman slavery uh was that roman because i assumed that was american slavery oh because there's an american republic right there you know i think it's purposefully both actually Mm, i i think roman slavery has to be in his mind here but i I also think think you're right so i think that he's talking about the present he says, what are the sinews and souls of mm. Russian serfs and Republican slaves but fast fish? Okay, you know what? You're probably right. You're probably right. I think that has to be the American Republic, which, you know, Civil War is not long away at this Yeah, point. no, okay. You're totally right. He is talking about modern American slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, he also describes, uh, you know, a, a, a landlord taking a widow's last mite. Uh, mite meaning just like... Uh, a might. tiny coin, an old yeah. British coin worth one eighth of a penny. Yes. Um, uh, he talks about, um, you, you know, know a, bankers a, and loaning. Yes, uh, and and like people owning mansions and uh, uh, archbishops uh, like extorting tithes from the poor, um, and uh, uh, ducal a ducal like uh, right to towns and properties. All of these are fast fish in that they are held by the property and that they, because they can extract from them, they do. And finally, of course, uh, we get to, uh, literally, colonialism. Uh, What to that redoubted harpooner John Bull, that's England, is poor Ireland, but a fast fish. And what to that apostolic lancer brother Jonathan, that's the United States, is Texas, but a fast fish. Ah, so... And concerning all these, is not possession the whole of the law? Coming in hot, Ishmael. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think he is definitely uh, criticizing basically all of these forms of possession Oh, yeah, no, every single one here is being framed purely as like, in theory, the law is supposed to be just, but all of these are obviously unjust arrangements maintained under the color of law. Yes, yeah. Yeah, Um, and um, so he says... But if the doctrine of fast fish be pretty generally applicable, the kindred doctrine of loose fish is still more widely so. That is internationally and universally applicable. And it's basically, if someone has something they can't hold on to, they are not going to hold on to it. Yes, so his, his first, like, in many details example is, is basically uh, the other... Previously we talked about, uh, uh, you know... Um, empires holding on to their colonies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or to their, you know, ter- whatever. I don't, I don't know if you would call Controlled it Controlled spaces. Yeah, Texas yeah. is not a colony to the U.S. exactly. I don't know what you would call it. Not going to get into it. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's now going on to describe the process of, uh, you know, conquering. Yes. Uh, what was America in 1492 but a loose fish in which Columbus struck the Spanish standard by way of waifing it for his royal master and mistress? It's literally... Have you got a flag? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Um, and then, I gotta say, so, you know, what, what was Greece to the Turk? What India to England? What at last will Mexico be to the United States? 
all loose fish. And I got to say, this was a a meaningful, like, political movement to annex Mexico. It was a big deal in the lead-up to um, uh, the Civil War. And I think even after that, there were often basically loud ideas of, hey, um, we could just take it. I think a, I think it was often a Texan position. Because yeah. Texas had been basically yanked off of Mexico. Yeah. Um, I remember that actually there's a number of, like, uh, alt-historical stories in which um, if the Confederate States of America survive as an independent nation, which, you know, oh. often these stories are awful, but they also often have them, like, going after Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As well as the Caribbean. And, and then uh, we go on to, to draw the concept of loose fish even broader. What are the rights of man and the liberties of the world but loose fish? What all men's minds and opinions but loose fish? What is the principle of religious belief in them but a loose fish? What to the ostentatious smuggling verbalists are the thoughts of thinkers but loose fish? What is the great globe itself but a loose fish? And what are you, reader, but a loose fish and a fast fish too? Wake up, fishel. <laughs> yeah, he is basically saying that, like, anything that is considered to be, you know, human freedom is really just something that anyone else might claim at any time. Yes, it's, these are all vulnerable. You do not hold them because they are, like, if you're just supposed to have them, then you don't have, like, power to maintain possession. Where And you're just waiting for someone else to, uh, you know, enact power on you. It's, um... It's a grimmer image of the world than Ishmael normally puts forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like I feel like Ishmael very often when he is talking about like the political and like economic, economic and and I would say just in general like I guess worldly arrangements yeah, yeah. of the world, he is often very pessimistic. It's it's when he is speaking of like higher pursuits and and the you know the placid calm and the soul and all of that yeah that's when he he is like knowledge and secrets and so on yeah that that, that's when he like i i think that his the optimism that we read in him at some times and this kind of pessimism are they fit they fit together one is worldly and one is mystical yes yeah no i think that's fair i do think that it would be interesting to ask ishmael whether he thinks that ahab's soul is a fast fish or a loose fish yeah ahab in particular yeah, I mean, okay, here's what I'll say, Ben. Uh, when Ahab's soul tries to escape, he is fully capable of oh, yanking yeah. it back. Yeah, no, he has a harpoon in his own soul. So, so yeah, I think it's a pretty fast fish. Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a good argument. I think that's fair. But I think that the, um, it's, it's interesting because there's sort of the, the implicit idea of the possibility of someone's soul and rights and dignities being fast fish, but for most they're loose fish. And it's, yeah... I think it's fair to say that Ahab absolutely has them fast in a way that's maybe not super healthy. Yeah. Because uh, th- this implies a sort of like a guardedness and opposition to the, the, the forms and shapes around you that will try to uh, uh, make your loose fish fast for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he's definitely, I will say that like this last paragraph I think is, a lot more cynical than Ishmael normally is about mm-hmm. the idea of, like, people coming to their beliefs. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm kind of reminded of the stuff he said before about, like, uh, you know, in, like, the Whale's Heads chapter about, like, 
people filling their heads with like Plato and Spinoza. Yeah, and... but those are that's not someone like seizing upon you. That's not that's philosophy, which he frames as like it's it's a honey head. It's, right. it's so intoxicating that's... as opposed to sophistry, which can capture you. Yeah, so that's kind of the thing. It's like I'm saying that he has previously suggested the idea that like getting um, enticed by philosophical ideas can be dangerous or foolish or just like bad for you but this is kind of suggesting that ideas can catch you or that i think it's not so much the ideas themselves it's the it's that you can be captured and have your ideas uh you know brought around to a certain position you can be tricked and and sophistrized that's not yeah a word. That's yeah not a word I, I guess like when i read him say what is the principle of religious belief in them but a loose fish? It seems to me like he's kind of saying people have this, you know, desire for religious belief. This, mm. and, and this it, general sense of religious belief without necessarily having it nailed down in specific. And it can be made fast by anyone yep, yep. at any time. Well, those ostentatious smuggling verbalists. Smuggling here meaning like someone who smuggles their assumptions in, who brings in uh, ideas to... Um, you know, to trick you into a certain proposition or a belief that you didn't necessarily sort of naturally hold, I think is what's meant. I'm, I'm interested yeah. in Power Moby Dick's Yeah, so Power Moby Dick's citation I don't actually think is correct. I think they are just trying here. It doesn't have like a, there's no like... Through line? There's no allusion to anything else. I think Power Moby Dick is just trying to explain this slightly confusing phrasing. Yeah. And what they say about ostentatious smuggling verbalists is... A pretentious person who passes other people's ideas off as his own. Mm. So Power Moby Dick is reading the smuggling here as oh, meaning plagiarism. like yeah, plagiarism. But I I think that you're reading where what's being smuggled is like you know perhaps you're hiding like intent or pre or purpose. The reason why you're telling someone this or convincing them of it is for some other nefarious reason. Yeah, or even like that you are hiding like the the import of what you're saying within like honeyed words you know like mm -hmm. you're saying yeah. things that are surface appealing but then they like lead to some particular conclusion that you're trying mm -hmm. to push yeah um smuggling and assumptions as we say yeah exactly um anyways uh, uh what is the great globe itself but a loose fish is um i don't know what he means by that i mean i guess he just means the 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 globe is available to anyone who can ah, successfully hold on to it yeah it is yeah i guess that's fair it's um the prize of empires never won yeah something like that um well jeez. yeah uh and what about you dear listener this you what are you but a loose fish and a fast fish too this episode has been harrowing it's gone a lot of places yeah like it's been great i've enjoyed it thoroughly but also like Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, I, look, we've, we've been places, we've seen things, the, <sighs> what tune do we sing for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat? <laughs>